I don't know, Russ. This uh, weakening yen has got me worried. I can't get that many CDs, and uh, I've already had to, as I've mentioned a few weeks ago, I had to halt uh, construction on the cooling tower that I'm building in back of my house. I'm afraid it's going to be like the the parachute ride at Coney Island, where it's just going to be this relic of uh, this un, you know, this unused relic in the neighborhood. An unfinished monument. Yeah. Oh boy. Right here in my <laughs> in my backyard. I could just sell, sell tickets. Maybe it'll be a tourist attraction. Hey, what were we looking at uh, before? The price on that uh, CD. The, <laughs> oh, man. The, uh... Yeah, the CD, we um, we reviewed uh, the album. Well, we reviewed, we talked about the album a few weeks ago. The uh, uh, Foltz one? Jean-Marc Foltz. Yeah, Jean-Marc Foltz. The jazz Indigo. one. Yeah. Wonderful. Indigo, which is a great record. Yeah. And I want a copy of that on CD. And it's out on CD. But they want... <laughs> Over thirty dollars for it, American dollars. Yeah. In Japanese yen now, that's over four thousand yen. So if you think about the the normal exchange rate when things are all even, that thirty dollars equals three thousand Japanese yen. Right now, it's more like thirty dollars equals four thousand five hundred Japanese yen or something like that. It's just really nuts. You just have no yeah. buying power at all. Four thousand five hundred. That's like you know, yeah, a meal for two at uh, Izakaya or something. You know, uh, <laughs> well, it was. Yeah, it used to be. <laughs> now it's more than that. Food prices yeah. have gone up too. Yeah, everything's going up. Yeah, you know what's not going up? My salary. So uh, I think we just have to yeah. tough it out this year. I was thinking this was going to be uh, our uh, breakout year, you know? Maybe it will be, but I mean... Uh, yeah, we'll have to make some sacrifices. We'll have to cut out the unnecessary uh, purchases. Yeah, like f like food. Can't have any of that. Got to get the CDs. Got to get the CDs. For the show. Everything's about the show. We're, we're here for you, listeners. Yeah, we've got to uh, press on. And, well, that CD was a clarinet CD. And... Uh, we got a lot of clarinets today. Clarinet tonight. That's right. Yeah. And some yeah. Um, spiritual practices and some Eastern strange Eastern mysticism, things. too. Yeah. yeah, it's going to be some... It's going to be an in, intriguing episode. going to venture off the normal path into some... Uh, yeah, unknown lands, and uh, yeah, it should be interesting. Yeah. By the way, I was looking at um, our sort of um, distribution around the world on our mm. our uh, the the podcast site, and mm. um, America, the United States, remains our number one uh, listeners. Thank you, Americans, for listening. Yeah. Uh, Japan is somehow is number two. I and um, it can't be. Because our friend, only our friends are listening. Because um, we don't have that know, many friends. We don't have that many friends, and I, of course, have no friends at all. Because uh, <laughs> I gave them all up for for music. <laughs> and uh, and uh, India is number three. Uh, mm. Thank you, Indian listeners. I'm we're really delighted by that. Um, or in, listeners in India, let's say. And one thing I noticed that was really funny is that there was this big white swath of, across the top. Like, nobody in Russia is listening to us. Mm. I'm a little surprised by that because it's a, it's a classical music place. Like, you would think... Uh, we have had some Russian listeners in the past. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just not that often. Yeah. We do have one or two Ukraine listeners, which is kind of interesting. You'd think yeah. that'd be a little more difficult to listen there, but... Um, they're tuning yeah. in, which is good. It's nice. Have, we get some uh, downloads in uh, places you wouldn't expect. Uh, yeah. I like to look at that uh, statistics. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, me too. We had someone from the uh, 
Dominican Republic this week, which is, I was kind of yeah. delightfully surprised by. I just want to say, I really hope people aren't using this podcast to help them with their English because God help us all if that's the case. <laughs> well, I, I would worry more about uh, our pronunciation of foreign names. I think there's going to be yeah. a few that will be butchered this evening. Um, you know, you know what we should do? We should just do the whole thing in New York accents and then people would be imitating us and then I'll send them to my brother's place and they'll all go with these weird fake New York accents and it'll <laughs> drive them crazy. It'll be fantastic. My revenge. <laughs> I would love that. Could do that. That'd be kind of funny. Yeah. It'd be yeah. like uh, the jerky boys do music the, or something. The jerky boys. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Do you have my CDs? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Well, uh, you're listening to Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. And this is episode 62. Wow, we're wow. getting up there. 62 getting already. And as usual, we'll be bringing you six new recordings. Uh, we're going to have some classical music and some jazz and focusing on clarinet tonight as yeah. uh, we hinted at well yeah kind of um yeah once we have one classical clarinet tonight but uh right. i think three classical clarinet would be a little too much <laughs> might be too much and i've got three but, you know, very different uh, jazz clarinet and uh we got some bass clarinet in there too which we always, uh, to always love the bass clarinet yeah, yeah. there are two with well i don't know maybe i shouldn't say and we have the uh the bassett clarinet in uh yeah the classical and which is a fantastic we'll get to that when i'll talk about that when we get there is that related to the bassett hound uh only, well in name only <laughs> uh, yeah maybe in, in sound i don't know <laughs> i think the bassett clarinet sounds much cooler at the low end let's yeah, just say the, that than the yeah. bassett hound yeah hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well we'll find I, out i well I've heard, though, that when you're starting to play, when you're learning to play the basset clarinet, it can sound like a basset hound. Uh, I believe that, yeah. Clarinet yeah. is one of those instruments where you don't want to be around a beginner. Uh, clarinets, trumpets, and violins, yeah. Um, yeah, clarinet. I remember one kid in, I was in fifth grade, and this, I don't want to say his name, <laughs> because he might be listening, and he played, uh, he, he, he played a, for his presentation for the class, he played a song on the clarinet. And I remember the song was called Ciao Lucia. It was an Italian song. He was an Italian-American kid like me. And so he plays this tune solo and he just, I didn't know the clarinet squeaked when you just didn't play yeah. it right, but he just squeaked his way right through it. It was just horrifying. <laughs> he just kept going. But, yeah, well, I guess good for him. He, yeah. uh, that's what you do. You know? yeah. <laughs> just don't give up, right? But uh, yeah, who knows? He may be a clarinet soloist today, but... I've yeah, never those, heard of him. He is. Those first so. months, those first months are rough. They uh, are. Yeah. yeah. Well, before we get going here, I want to remind our listeners in our episode description, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we'll discuss this evening. It's all available on streaming this time. At the top of the description, there's a link also uh, for the full episode playlist. You can get all of the music in one place in one long list on Deezer. That's our preferred streaming platform. CD quality sound, a nice interface. You can also catch the podcast there. Uh, look us up at username Adult Music Podcast. Uh, now, if you don't see the full description or you can't uh, click on the links on whatever app you're listening to us on right now, you can always come over to our host, Podbean, P O D B E A N dot com, 
And everything's easy to follow there. Get all the episodes uh, in chronological order. If you enjoy the podcast, please do follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you listen to us on. And if they have a ranking or review uh, function, we'd appreciate uh, giving us a ranking. Why not give us a five-star ranking? It only takes a no, second. No, definitely give us a five-star yeah. ranking if you like us because uh, anything else yeah. is just going to bring us down the list. So. Yeah, or write a review. That helps us yeah. get listed in the browsing category recommendations. Helps us catch new listeners, which we appreciate. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook. We've got a Facebook page, although we got an announcement from them that said they're not going to have podcasts anymore. Um, I don't know what that means, though. I think it might just be their hosting of the podcasts. You know? Yeah, I think we have a page there, and I think that page will stay up. Yeah, and you know, so we'll find a work. Check that out. Anyway. We posted a few things this week. I'm yeah. gonna try to post more things. Yeah, um, we put some related uh, video content and other humorous uh, little things. Uh, anything humorous that comes up, I'll put up there. Related to music during the week, uh, yeah. so you can uh, communicate there. We'd like to get some more people involved over there. You can also leave a message or comment. Uh, just look us up, Adult Music Podcast on Facebook. And uh, anything above and beyond that, if you want to get in touch with us directly with any comments or questions, uh, you can always drop us an email message at adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Yeah. Oh, incidentally, do you have any uh, personal experience with woodwind players? Like... Uh... So I remember we <laughs> have various experiences. I don't know what, what you're referring to. <laughs> what I mean is, <laughs> I think my first girlfriend was a clarinet player. Um, okay, yeah, I had a flute player uh, girlfriend once. Yeah, um, but clarinet, the clarinet. I. It's funny because there was that that kid in fifth grade, and then like um, there was uh, around here we had a professional clarinet player that I knew, and we went to his concert, and um, it started 45 minutes late because he couldn't warm the instrument up and get it in tune to his liking and oh. uh, it just seemed like they're a fussy lot he kind of kept unwinding the uh the the kind of string that holds the reed in and stuff and just adjusting everything it was really irritating i don't know that you know things I, I like the idea of like being a musician i would have liked to have been one but then i look at these people and i say ah, i don't know i i can't i can't get this I would have you left know, and gone to the bar about or things. something, you know. So Say again? I would have left and gone to the bar. Um, <laughs> well, you're a brass minutes, player, that's yeah. why, you know. <laughs> 45 minutes, no the, way. The, the, the brass player is a little more, I have a thing for the bar, I think, I don't know. Yeah, but we deal with our own things. Cold. I remember uh, once I had yeah. been conscripted to play, I, it was like, I don't know, it was some kind of... Uh, parade you know that ended mm. up it was in a winter and it was like a memorial thing for a military mm. thing and there was a, a chaplain or someone giving this uh, dedication and he was kind of long-winded and it, it was like below freezing outside and i had to play like <laughs> my buddy or some like military thing. <laughs> when, I, when i put the, the horn to my lips i think they actually froze up to my face and i couldn't uh, get a sound out of it you know so yeah, brass players have their own things to deal with. Yeah, yeah. Aside from uh, dodging uh, what the horses left behind in the parade if you march behind them. Right. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, which often fun. happens, huh? I guess yeah, for, uh, yeah, I hate marching. I never liked that, so. Yeah, well. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, I don't that's know. One, that's one thing you have to do when you're a brass player. If you're a singer, you got to sing at all these weddings. You got to sing these goofy songs that they want you to sing and all yeah. that, you know. But singers are kind of made for that. They kind of, they like the spotlight. Ham it up. So. Yep. 
All right. Anyway, tonight, well, we're saving the clarinet for later in the uh, classical era, but we do have uh, woodwinds right at the beginning. Um, the first um, album that we're doing tonight is one of our favorite composers on the... We should make a list, actually, on our site that says, you know, things we love, things we hate. I'm going to start compiling that, I think. Uh, that would be a, fun. Yeah, we should do while, that. But yeah. But one yeah. of the things we both love, and it's got to be things we both love. It can't be just one of us is crazy about this. Right. It's just yeah. a, 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 the, the, the podcast loves this. Mm-hmm. We both love the music of Carl Philip Emanuel Bach, and that has been the case since around the year 2012 when we heard Andreas Steyer's recording of... CPE box um, keyboard concertos. He played it on the harpsichord, and uh, it was a fantastic performance. It really just kind of hmm. gave us a look into his world. Like Steyer understood all the the humor and the music and things like that. So we've been avidly listening to Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach uh, albums as they came out ever since, and they're coming out more and more. He seems to be uh, drawing the attention of musicians and hopefully audiences too. But the musician, it's really musicians. They want to, they they want to play his music. So they, mm. um, that's really, it's musicians that make music popular. It's not really audiences. Yeah, um, you know, he's got that really identifiable style and approach. Um, yeah, you can almost always pick out uh, his sort of uh, little personality stamps and signature kind of uh, things with his rhythms and uh, yeah. the unexpected things uh, that make his compositions, you know, really unique and fun to listen to. Um, yeah. Yeah, usually, but eh, not so much here, a little bit. We're gonna, Just a we're bit. Gonna, this is a pretty yeah. interesting album, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, Carl Philip Emanuel Bach, Sonatas for a Flute. And it says here, Forte Piano. It, yeah, I guess it's a Forte Piano. Okay. Yeah. Um, Francois Lazarevich on the flute and Justin Taylor, our, someone we really like on this um, podcast, um, on the, uh, I think, forte piano, but the CD actually says pianoforte, which means a pianoforte is a piano. Hmm. It's a modern piano. Um, the, the full name of it in Italian is pianoforte, which means soft loud because it can go hmm. soft and loud, which a harpsichord can't do. This one doesn't um, sound really modern, though. It sounds... Uh... No, it's an Erard from uh, the 1840s, I think. Mm. Um, I think. Wait, uh, I'm thinking maybe I'm... I don't want to say that because I might be confusing recordings here. I can check. But yeah, it does sound like uh, yeah, something a little older. Now, there's also the uh, word forte piano, which people now use. This was not the case at the time. There's actually no such word as forte piano. It was just made up recently. Mm. But... Um, critics or writers use it to identify a piano from the 19th century, the the early to mid 19th century, and they call it a forte piano instead of a pianoforte, which would be the modern piano. Okay, in Italian, in English we just cut the forte part out and just call it a piano, which actually sounds cool. I kind of like the word piano. Piano, which yeah. in the southern certain southern states comes out as piani or something like that. You know. Oh, really? Wow. He played the piani. Piani. Mm. Yeah, I've heard that somewhere. I don't know. I'm trying to get this. Uh, okay. No, actually, it's not an Erard. It's um, this this piano is um, it was built in 2017, but it's after an older one. So it's hard to say, really. Mm. The, the thing is, I have the CD, and there are no pictures of the instruments and um. The flute on this isn't a metal flute. It sounds like a wooden flute, but again, I didn't see it. I'm going by the sound. Mm. It does have a woody quality to it. Yeah. 
I thought the piano has a rather dainty kind of quality to it on this right. recording. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it fits in pretty well here mm -hmm. with this particular flute. It's not a modern flute, as we said. Um, by the way, for people who, for those those annoying people out there who ask me, how come the flute is a woodwood instrument? Because it's metal. Well, because it was originally wood. <laughs> okay, that's why. We just didn't <laughs> change the, the name. All right, the, the original flutes were wooden flutes. They were like recorders, sort of. All right, anyway, getting on to this rather interesting album. It was really lovely. I liked it. And uh, a little um, idiosyncratic, too. Um, uh, C.P.E. Bach um, himself wrote an essay on the true art of playing keyboard instruments um, that um, we these days read so that we know how to perform works from that era, like what was in style or things like that um he said that emotion came before everything else so this is like the key to his music now he doesn't mm. mean emotion like like beethoven where it's just roiling passion and things like that um but he meant emotion like every emotion happy sad you know he and he included them all in his music often in the same piece which is what makes his yeah. music so interesting um he would often change moods on hairpin turns of harmony and odd pauses that led to unexpected harmonies. harmonies. And uh, remember, he lived at around Mozart's time, so as you can imagine, musical conservatives were horrified by his music. Of course, we're not. <laughs> it sounds nice. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but those guys with the wigs, oh, those, they, th those wigs, <laughs> those, those hairs were standing on end, even through the wigs. You'd look good anyway, with one of those wigs on, you know? I'd like to see you with you one know, of I don't have any hair, so I'd probably look okay with them. Yeah. I'd kind of look... They make you look a little effeminate, though. I don't know. A bit, kinda, yeah. Yeah, especially with those. But like that's what they wanted then, though, because they were gentlemen. jacket you know, they and big yeah. white wig. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The big wig. Um, anyway, we're entertained by these today and grateful for the emotions provided in our numbing world. <laughs> <laughs> so... You could get all the emotions all in one piece if you listen to CBE Bach, but actually not in all of these. Now, the odd thing about this is um, this album is that the pieces for flute and uh, keyboard are all trio sonatas. So that means there was a solo instrument. It was usually a violin in this case. So these have been sort of played by the flute here. And then there was a keyboard, and then there was a basso continuo, which was usually some kind of cello or viola da gamba that would uh, play the bass notes. On this album, the uh, piano, the keyboard, the forte piano, is playing both the piano yeah, part. he does it all. Yeah, and the uh, the the uh, basso continuo part. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting, because you can hear him distinguishing between the two when he plays, because mm -hmm. he plays in this... This is Justin Taylor. He plays in this sort of um, heavily in a staccato style, which he doesn't need to do on a uh, forte piano. It can play legato. Legato would be connecting, yeah. connecting all the notes like in a melody, like a you know a flowing mm -hmm. melody. Staccato means it's just the the notes are separated. Well, I get the you know an overall more of a harpsichord type approach to his playing yeah. here. Well, he is uh, a harpsichordist. That's yeah. probably yeah, and um, especially. He gets some impressive bursts of notes, you know, like you yeah. get on the harpsichord. But then, like you say, in the, there are some sections where you would expect a more legato kind of connection of notes, but he doesn't do that. Uh, right. And, uh, I mean, it must be his, uh, you know, decided upon approach. And uh, hmm. it's not bad. It's just unique and 
what's really impressive is that he has these different parts going on at the same time. And they're often, you know, quite different rhythmically and moving in different directions. But uh, he's able to, uh, you know, take those two separate parts uh, for different instruments. And yeah. uh, makes the piano parts really interesting to listen to here. Yeah. I, I mentioned staccato. It's bringing back a memory of an old piano teacher of mine who told me that, you know, staccatos are notated with like a dot over the note okay and the piano teacher told me that you have to play those like the keys are hot so you're like oh <laughs> you know you're gonna <laughs> so that's one. a really short note because you're just pulling your hand away from it really fast right. but it's not really true that wasn't really a good advice because a staccato can be you know they can be held a little bit they just have to be yeah. disconnected from each other that's really yeah. all it really means and that's what he's giving us here he's not giving us the oh this keyboard is too hot for me to touch kind of feeling <laughs> <laughs> the things the things that stay with you oh man anyway i've got um, one like that uh when playing the trumpet i had a trumpet teacher who told me imagine you have a small delicate christmas ornament in the front of your mouth and you're blowing air around it, so <laughs> that you're of course thinking why would you do why that why would you do that yeah exactly so, you know. wouldn't you just back off and look at it you know? <laughs> so, yeah. some of the ideas these people came up with was really funny I've got other piano stories coming up <laughs> anyway um, the, the first trio sonata here is actually a pretty conservative one as is the last one we're going to hear on the album so the two the two pieces of bread sandwiching this program um this one was um adapted in 1747 now remember uh, johann sebastian bach cpe's father the great johann sebastian bach died in 1750 so this is three years before his death and he made a famous visit to uh potsdam to visit his son cpe and to play for uh, king frederick of prussia who i then who then i think set him the uh the theme for the musical offering which he then I think. I'm, oh man, I hope I got this right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> anyway, I'm pretty sure. The musical offering. I'm doing this off the top of my head, people. I know I'm a scholar, but uh, I don't read these books every day. Um, so, um, so he played for King Frederick of Prussia. This is a really famous event in music history. And this was adapted from an earlier violin sonata that uh, CPE wrote in 1731. Um, and it sounds kind of a lot like his father, Johann Sebastian. It's, mm. it's, there are flute sonatas by Johann Sebastian Bach. And to be honest, I, it would be hard to tell the difference because these, this kind of continues and operates like a Johann Sebastian Bach uh, flute sonata. So this is a pretty conservative piece. Um, it, it has a lot of Baroque style to it, but there's no, no problem with that. It's very appealing. Okay. And, yeah. uh, we hear, um, the, uh, keyboard first it sounds close to a harpsichord in this uh, piece actually in general really um let me see what i have here the flute is far more present than the piano sound on this album but i have no problem with that you can hear mm. both uh, the piano is definitely audible and uh lazarevich's tone the f he's the playing the flute is full-bodied and appealing and very forward i like taylor's playing here and especially the way he outlines the downward bass figures now Remember, he has to play the uh, basso continuo part, the, the bass line, which would have been a separate instrument. So he's playing both parts here. And he really goes out of his way to make sure you hear those bass notes with mm -hmm. the staccato and just kind of by just accenting them a little harder than the other notes. So I was aware of this throughout this entire album. 
Uh, it was no problem. I really uh, appreciated that. But uh, it was something that drew attention to itself just because it was so unusual. So listen for that. Uh, second movement, Largo, the, uh, which means very slow. Um, the forte piano twinkles while the flute plays staccato figures at the beginning. I wonder if they told if his teacher told him that, oh, the, the place where you put your lips is really hot. <laughs> <laughs> Just blow into it quickly. <laughs> I think that would be the opposite. You know, you'd want to put the fire out, I think. Anyway. Anyway, it's very attractive playing. Sorry to uh, distract you with that comment, but uh, listeners. Okay, this reverts to uh, more legato playing as the movement goes on. And uh, again, Taylor, very sensitive to the bass line's movement. Make sure we hear it. Uh, the imitations by the harpsichord of the flute's melodies are also clearly outlined, so they really stand out. Uh, this is enjoyable and totally chilled out all the way through to add in a... I think C.P.E. Bach would have liked to have heard that his music was chill. <laughs> yeah, that's what the C stood for. Sounds chill. like a cool guy. He had a sense of humor. He was yeah. uh, Mozart really liked him and his music. Mm. So there you go. Mozart was a practical joker himself. Anyway, third movement, Allegro. Uh, this particular movement was newly written for the trio. So th the first two movements came from a four-movement violin sonata from oh, 1731, okay. and this third movement was written in 1747. That makes sense to me, end. because yeah. uh, mm -hmm. this is... I thought the first two, like you were describing, they were more rather generically Baroque in style, but right. I picked up a much more distinctive CPE kind of uh, style that I you know, recognized from his other music in the third movement alone. And so I thought right. that stood out as being more identifiable. Yeah, another unusual thing about this is that the first movement usually is pretty fast. It's a sonata. But in this case, it's allegretto, which would be more like a second movement. So he lifted the second, I think, the second movement from his violin sonata mm -hmm. for this work. So there's no fast first movement. No worries there, though. Anyway, this particular uh, third movement um, is lively. It's the only lively movement in this work, and it's taken in a well-etched, I called it, precise manner. Now, when musicians play a rhythm like precisely, it generally means that there's not much excitement in it. Um, and this isn't really terribly exciting, but it doesn't really detract from the liveliness. It's a, still a very lively uh, movement. I think it falls short of exciting, though. Um, both players are concerned that you hear all the connections between the melodic figures they're playing, and that makes the performance really intellectually satisfying. Mm -hmm. uh, Taylor especially does a lot to make sure we're aware of all the repeated notes. There are a lot of them, hitting them firmly as the flute uh, flutters out the melody above. So there's a lot of like dun 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 in the harpsichord or mm -hmm. the uh, the uh, forte piano. Uh, you'll notice it when you hear it. Okay, moving on. Trio sonata in D major. Wat Quen, 83. I should really look up who Mr. Where, where, where this Wat Quen designation comes <laughs> from. Like who, is it? Is this somebody's name? It's it's a catalog of CPE mm. box works, but I'm just wondering who Wat Quen was. Okay, this is uh, an alternative version of um, CPE's um, Wat Quen 151 trio sonata. So it's just a different version of that. Um, the first movement is Allegro un poco. So it starts kind of um, fast. Um, it's got a lot of repeated notes in the keyboard bass, and um, originally played by a basso, basso continuo, may even have been held, who knows. And I like the way Taylor handles it, 
here and really throughout the album. Uh, this piece has a Baroque flavor to it, a little more conservative for CPE. We're hearing a side of him that well, probably was the most familiar before we heard, but we, we're familiar with his um, lighter, more jokey side, mm. and uh, we're not hearing that so much here. I don't want to say yet, but we don't really hear that on this album. I'll get to the one strange piece on it later. Um, mm. He can be really unconventional, but not here. Uh, there are a few. There are a few appealing imitations between the two instruments as well. Always intellectually satisfying when the ear picks up. The connections between the uh, solo instrument and the accompanying yeah. instrument. Yeah. The counter lines and, are great. Um, yeah, they um, are. The interplay is really, is, you know, he's not, this is not just a keyboard accompanying a flute. There's a high level of interaction and trading involvement uh, in the way it's written, uh, which makes for exciting listening. Yeah, Taylor, by the way, again, like I said, he doesn't play legato on this um he plays he's deliberate and clear in his articulation of all the lines and he plays mostly in a staccato manner and it's, he leaves it to the flute to um mm. do the legato melody speaking of legato melodies the second movement largo has a lyrical melody on the flute to start out and the piano line takes the melody after the flute's initial statement the flute provides harmonic elements at that part and drops out for a few measures then retakes the main line there's imitation again. Uh, I'm starting to catch on to uh, Lazarevich's approach here. He'll clip his melodies at the end to indicate that they're finished. And as a result, we get a clear sense of where the melodies, as he hears them, begin and end. Because mm. you can just really just keep playing, you know, and sort mm -hmm. of... Um, and he sometimes his sometimes staccato approach echoes the piano's approach. So I think when he's doing that, he's deliberately trying to imitate the piano's approach. So... The, the the approaches of the two are very distinguished, and when they start copying each other, it's because they want you to sort of notice that they're mm. sort of in, in line with each other. Uh, Taylor has a lot of sensitivity on this recording, uh, which is what draws us to his harpsichord recordings. Uh, he's a very sensitive player. I really appreciate hearing him. Uh, the third movement, Allegro, is a lively movement with some sudden pauses characteristic of CPE Bach. We love those sudden jamming on the brakes that uh, CPE does. We wouldn't like it if he was driving a car, but in music, it's really fun. This is the kind of thing that would have driven musical conservatives of his era crazy. Um, also, lots of accented repeated notes in the piano bass that Taylor accents. Uh, the movement, uh, due to North's staccato approach of the keyboard, doesn't come across as quirky, but is highly appealing. And this is despite some built-in quirks. All the quirks are charming in this case, mm. which is quite a trick, I have to say. Uh, as in the first trio we heard, the liveliness of this movement comes through despite the duo's careful articulation of key melodies and bass notes. Um, so it's, it's, it, they still manage a liveliness despite mm. paying so much attention to uh, articulation. Because yeah, you can sort of concentrate too much and just lose the big picture. They never do that. Um, it has the liveliness has to do with maintaining a very steady pulse that never slackens. So you get this sort of tension, a sort of tense feeling. Again, it's not an exciting performance as it could be, but very satisfying and charming. So yeah, I didn't feel like. So, so in other words, the rhythm doesn't slacken, so it doesn't like feel like it's sort of um, the, the tension is just being let loose. The tension is there, but they're just not really you know going for it like some musicians would. Okay, it's it's sort of a a careful it's an attentive approach, let's say. Mm. 
and very appealing one. I, I don't mean that to sound. I just want to give you an idea what you're going to hear. All right. The third work is a sonata for solo flute, okay, in A minor, Watt Quen 132. Okay, now Lazarevich says in the booklet note that he wanted to follow CPE Bach's spirit and vary a lot of the written material in the repeats, as CPE, as CPE Bach himself did in solo keyboard performances. So you'll hear the material played straight, and then in the repeat there'll be a lot of ornamentation, and who knows, they may even change certain things. And um, I've had piano teachers tell me to do that. And I think the idea originally comes from C.P.E. Bach. It may have actually have come from Johann Sebastian himself through C.P.E. Okay, and we know this about him, about C.P.E. Bach, from his written-out divergences in his keyboard sonatas. So we have evidence mm-hmm. of this. Of course, we, we none of us have ever heard him. But uh, there could be written reports at the time, too, of how he played. The piece has linear counterpoint. I really like these um, solo instruments that are playing like counterpoint to themselves. It's a real yeah. trick. Like you have to play like two different lines, make it sound like two different lines going against each other. Yeah. Uh, low notes uh, form an imaginary bass line or pedal point, and some phrases are close to recita- recitative in opera mm. in the first movement. First movement, poco adagio, so it starts very slowly. The slow tempo allows one to separate out the different voices. I have that in quotation marks because it's all one instrument uh, that CPE is using. Lazarevich gives the bass notes a slight honk and strong staccato attack to make them stand out and contrast to the legato melodic material. Uh, this is really nice. It's, it's almost like he's he's playing two lines and he's giving them two different sound qualities so that you, the listener, can follow them easily. There are some surprising sudden chord changes and false cadences. I am a big fan of the false cadence, mm. um, which we don't hear anymore in music because we, musicians now don't use keys in classical music. Yeah. Anyway, the movement is ternary, so A-B-A, so you can have a repeating section at the end. And on the repeat, Lazarevich does indeed add a lot more. It sounds like there's a coda at the end, unless the material is so decorated that it didn't notice it was the same. I can't really tell. <laughs> um, but very satisfying movement. I really do love when soloists like a flautist are able to command attention, playing a single note at a time. You know, so it's really amazing. Yeah. Allegro, second movement, which is rather unusual. Uh, usually the middle movement is the slow movement. This movement is more dancey and rhythmic with lots of figuration. Um, or, or figure, I should repeat, I should, we should probably write these out somewhere. Figuration is melodic material that's too fast or too kind of machine-like or instrument-like to be sung. We, we call that figuration. So it's not really a singable sort of, it's not singable melodic material. So you can think of um, your favorite Chopin, uh, you know, piano runs or something like that as figuration. You know, anyway. A repeat of the open material is taken, and Lazarevich does throw in some nice ornamentation on the repeat, maintaining a gorgeous flute sound throughout. He sounds great. I really do like his sound. Yeah, um, they've got this- just the right amount of uh, room reverb here to keep the mm. presence uh, for a solo instrument. Uh, he has a benefit of some echo to uh, blend the the notes together uh, in a nice sustain. So, right. So you do hear that um, room ambience, even though he's he sounds like he's 
fairly close to the microphone. He, I mean, mm-hmm. there's there's distance between them so that you can pick up his sound. He's not like blocking out the whole hall sound. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's it's a nice balance. Good work to the engineers here. Uh, this work sort of reminds me of something Johann Sebastian would do, actually, his father. Uh, this, pr- pr- no, 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 not Lazarevich's father, CPE Box's father. <laughs> <laughs> this particular movement doesn't have so many of the occasional quirks that the opening movement does, but there are one or two. And here, uh, Lazarevich underplays them to focus on the melodic material. So you'll have to have some sharp ears to hear those. The third movement, well, you have to be paying attention, really. The third movement, Allegro, is another lively movement, though this one is a bit more fitful with lots of pauses between phrases in the opening theme. We can hear two voices in dialogue. Now, remember, there's only one person playing, right? mm. so he's sort of creating this illusion of these two voices. Yeah, he's got these like, double sheets of sound going on. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's kind of cool, yeah. Yeah, let me be clear too. That it's there aren't two two sounds happening at the same time ever. It's him jumping from yeah. line to line, and he distinguishes between both of them well with his sound and attack. Uh, we can hear the two voices in dialogue: a lower and a higher. Um, there are occasional subtle, slight vibrato or some kind of weird shaking of the tone mm. on repeated notes by Liz, by Lazarevich that caught my ear. I think it has to do with that him cutting off the tone, that same technique. But it really kind of jumped out at me. I think it's the attack on repeated notes that I liked here. A beautiful performance all the way through, appealing in every way, and a yeah. nice slight flurry on the flute to end the piece, a little note flurry. You, know, you get a thing. sense of, like, mm. th- this piece reminds me of, like, a perpetual motion melody machine. It's yeah. like, you got to feel like CPE Buck could have kept this going forever and just say, you know, like, what am I going to do next? Just keep listening. And the creativity... It's just sort of like unraveling constant melody lines that could go on forever uh, out of his imagination. Yeah, yeah, he does seem to be one of these guys, probably like his dad, who just had these nonstop ideas and could probably just keep going yeah. forever. You know, really amazing. All right, we get to the next piece, which is a trio sonata again. This one's in C major. Uh, Wat Quinn, one hundred forty-nine. Oh. I should say Vatkven. I should say it in German. I'm so terrible with this. Okay, all based on newly composed material by CPE. First movement, Allegro di Molto. The keyboard comes in as a surprise after being so mesmerized by the previous piece. Okay, because we've just heard flute. And now I was like, bang, we're back to the keyboard. So it's a little surprising to the ear. We get a lot of those repeated bass notes that Taylor accents. This is Justin Taylor. This is a pretty lively movement. There's a lot of echoing of material between instruments. And the interplay here is predictably on point. Really good. Taylor's sound on the forte piano is completely dry. No pedals seem to be used. The forte piano had pedals. Um, The movement is brief at three minutes long. This is a pretty short piece, actually. Second movement, Andante. We hear some pedal from the piano here as he plays the opening slow lyrical theme. Uh, The flute picks it up and varies it a bit. Taylor again has a lot of repeated notes to play in the bass. Uh, This is because it was originally a bass basso continuo part, and he makes them stand out. These notes underpin the harmony. Third movement, Allegretto, is a lively finale with a busy flute in the opening. The melody eventually gets passed on to the keyboard, and the flute echoes it. Next, we get to the solo piano work, Fantasia, in F-sharp minor, 
Vatkven67. Well, if you're enjoying this album and uh, feeling really comfortable in your chair, this is where you're going to start getting queasy. <laughs> this is, this is uh, the Fantasia. Uh, this is real CPE box stuff, and I don't mean yeah. in the humorous way, but in the uh, – this was more like what we heard on the Mark andre Online recording yeah. back in January, right, when we did his <laughs> – Piano sonatas. I tell you, my, my final comment when we get to the end. Of this, okay. I just saw it again. Made myself laugh. Okay. This is a continuous sequence of contrasting sections. So it's almost like the, the, it's in uh, three sections, but basically it's all one section. And you can kind of think of it as you're walking through this long sort of hallway, and it's got like maybe differently decorated things on the wall at different colored lights in each section of it and it's just really weird and disorienting okay i think of maybe uh edgar Allan poe's story the mask of the red death with all the uh. different colored rooms maybe something like that um for for the way this uh plays out um a uh story incidentally that uh cp but he wouldn't know because it was written a hundred years yeah. <laughs> or 50 years after he died or something like that. Okay. Um, a continuous sequence of contrasting sections and a tonality that gives a strange melancholy mood. That's from the booklet notes. Uh, much of the score lacks bar lines. This is also from the booklet notes. I didn't see the score, meaning there wouldn't be a clear downbeat. Uh, mm. One musical theoretician, I thought this was funny, Johann Matheson, characterized the key of F-sharp minor as... Misanthropic. <laughs> wow. I'd like to sit him down and ask him why he thinks so. Yeah, it's hard to uh, read, but... Hating people. Yeah. <laughs> Misanthropic. I think I'll write a piece with that, um, that, that, that that describes my hatred of the human race. I'll put it in F-sharp minor. <laughs> I don't know. Actually, I never heard that before. I call. I said this piece has bipolar disorder. <laughs> it could very well. Yeah, it uh, keeps it keeps going to opposite extremes, uh, and the more and more as it progresses. Yeah, I want to point out to listeners too that this is what CPE Bach is all about. We're hearing all the emotions as we walk mm -hmm. down this long musical corridor. Uh, the goal here for the pianist is to uh, give the impression of spontaneously improvising the music with a heightened expressivity. This has to sound improvised, otherwise it's not going to work. Yeah. Okay. And uh, Justin Taylor does a nice job of that. Let's get into some uh, Adagio. Okay, well, the first track. Now, there are three tracks on this. Uh, the um, entire piece is divided into three tracks, but it should be thought of as one long continuous uh, movement. Right, with lots of it, sections. It doesn't, like the first one mm. doesn't resolve itself. It sort of just goes right into the next uh, movement. Right. Okay, so right away, we get into some dark key areas right at the beginning. <laughs> There's a lot of emotional variety, to say the least, almost immediately in this two minute and 30 second track. Uh, it was It's quiet, then suddenly loud, plaintive, then suddenly anxious. Uh, Taylor picks up on all these emotions well. Uh, the rhythm consists of a bass note followed by three repeating chords, like dun, 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 dun you know, uh, which the right hand occasionally picks up. There are a lot of quick changes. The allegretto is only about 30 seconds long. <laughs> it consists of rapid scalar figuration, all of it pretty loud. 
We go to the second track of this um, recording. There's really no um, transition. We go directly into a dark sounding minor key. The melody is a bit disjointed due to the quick textural changes. Taylor is alert to all of these and brings musicality out of material that may not sound as musical in other hands. Yeah, that's because he sounds like he's improvising it, so he's sort of prepared a way to make this sound spontaneous. It really won't work otherwise if it sounds studied, mm. you know? It's a stark disjointed movement that requires a deep musical understanding to put it across, and Taylor has that. We hear the bass note followed by three repeated chords from the opening make another appearance, uh, then a sudden reversion to the mood of this movement's opening with some flourishes thrown in. There's a sudden stop with no cadence at the end of this section with a long pause, and then we get to the uh, third track in this piece, which is track 15 on the CD or the um, or your streaming. And uh, we're back at the beginning with the bass notes and chords. So the album has... Um, uh, set up its tracks so that we can kind of follow the uh, pattern. So the third section, the third track of this recording brings us back to the beginning music. Uh, bass note and chords again. This breaks up in a new direction with descending repeated notes. There's a pretty impressive long scalar flourish at 1 minute and 40 seconds that ends by sounding like something out of a Schoenberg he has these unresolved short figures, and Schoenberg used these a lot, except that he was using them um, as his means of expression in his um, twelve-tone music. C.P. <laughs> Bach has these in in har in in a harm you know traditional harmony, but he's using the same type of figures. And I kind of wonder if Schoenberg got this idea from uh, music of this era, especially by C.P.E. Something more romantic emerges at around two minutes and fifteen seconds, putting C.P.E. ahead of his time. Or that's just how Taylor interprets it. I can't really tell. Uh, then we go back to some quick figures. A lot of material sounds unrelated, but Taylor does exceptionally well to make it all hold together. This is a pretty disturbing work for its time. <laughs> I bet people couldn't sleep after hearing this back in the day. Maybe maybe CPE, you know, the, the, you know, he played it for the ladies. They couldn't sleep, and then he made his way to their bedroom and said, Oh, <laughs> let, me, let me keep you company. I don't know. This uh, actually kind of reminds me of a girl I used to date, but. Uh. <laughs> oh, boy, that says a lot. Not the clarinet player, but. Uh, yeah. In what way? Can you describe that? Or is it, that's all you want to uh, say about that? These uh, frequent changes of moods. Uh, oh, man. Yeah. Unresolved cadences and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> breathtaking yeah, the, tempos <laughs> yeah listening to this piece might may remind you of relationships you might want to forget there, yes. there is something really bipolar about it yep. okay all right but no worries the very last uh piece on the album track 16 to 18 is a conservative trio sonata in b minor vatkven 143 and this is the other of the two works adapted in 1747 the year j.s bach made his famous visit to potsdam uh, from an earlier violin sonata from 1731, and they sound very Johann Sebastian Bach-like. Um, the Allegro um, reassures the listener after the previous piece, which, boy, if he had ended on that. <laughs> I think actually Amlan on his double CD um, mm. CP Bach album does leave us in a nightmarish place <laughs> at the end, <laughs> as, as he would. <laughs> okay. 
Um, this, is a, this is a very pretty flute melody uh, and gets a lively accompaniment. We, the flute is back, of course. Uh, gets a lively accompaniment from the keyboard, which echoes its melody at times. Uh, beautifully articulated. The adagio has a minor sounding melody in the flute and gently and lamentingly accompanied by the keyboard. Sad sounding movement. And the presto, the last movement, is a very lively, bouncing 6-8 rhythm, sounding jig-like. Yeah, all uh, those the triplets flute, bouncing around in there. Yeah, yeah. they bounce in those uh, Baroque and classical-era works. The flute is often playing triplets itself, right along with the keyboard. So, yeah, you hear these mm-hmm. right up front. They're not disguising them, which can be done. Um, the keyboard is really keeping the rhythm in this one. They echo each other, as is common in these works. It's a light lively send-off for an enjoyable and occasionally challenging program. The challenging work is the Fantasia, so make sure you hear that. I found the music on this album to be closer to CPE's Dad JS, Johann Sebastian's music, than to his quirkier stuff. thought there's some of that too, especially the solo keyboard Fantasia, which really stands out on this album. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lazarevich is a stylish player on the flute with a gorgeous sound. He partners well with Taylor. The both of them sound great together. Both of them are on the same page interpretatively and stylistically. Beautifully recorded too. Balances are well realized and I want to give the engineer a shout out. Who is he? I should always write these down. Olivia Rosette is the uh, recording producer and uh, I'm not seeing the engineer's name. Hmm. Oh, well. Production. Nope, not getting it. Oh, well. They didn't They didn't list him. Maybe the producer. It's on Alpha label, too. Should, uh... Say again? It's on Alpha. Oh, it's alpha. on the Alpha yeah, label. Yes. That. That's yeah. why I didn't mention that at the beginning. Okay, so there you go. Yeah, Recommended. I like, I like hmm. this one a lot. Uh, as you say, it's, it leans more uh, traditional Baroque style, much more in... Uh, the shadow of his father uh yeah but we it we get these uh peaks of uh more of his more quirky works especially with uh the f sharp minor uh fantasia piece um the flute is uh, engaging i like the full tone on it uh you know a lot of flute can get in, up into that uh, higher register that can be a little bit fatiguing but you won't find that on this recording uh especially on the solo flute passage, the warmth of the tones and the, uh, in the lower register that he, he uh, gets out is uh, quite endearing. And the sonics, that uh, sort of room reverb that uh, you know, makes the sustain of the notes uh, hang out, makes it uh, really easy to listen to. And then Taylor's uh, keyboard approach is uh, fun to listen to too. Like I say, he takes kind of a, staccato harpsichord kind of approach but uh his uh, rhythms are really tight uh almost like his fingers are you know spring loaded and uh, hmm. some of the faster passages are really technically amazing uh almost like he's going to spontaneously combust if he played any faster on them uh so there's a lot of good energy in there not overdone i should say and hmm. uh some of the slower passages are indeed uh rather uh kind of calming and so you get the nice contrast in there but uh, a good listen and any fan of cpe bach music will enjoy this uh, as well as taylor's uh, impressive keyboard work so yeah a good uh, baroque recording to start out with 
Yeah, Baroque classical. Classical. Hard to say. What do they call it? He's, he's really on the on the yeah. borderline here. In the middle, there. A, there is a lot of Baroque sounding work on it. Yeah. I should mention too the uh, the wooden flute though. If it gets up into its high end, it's the edge isn't as as like cutting as it is on like the the modern metal flute. Yeah. I don't think which is yeah. a much brighter sounding instrument. Um, although, I guess Mozart would have heard flutes like this, and he hated them. He really didn't like the flute because of its. High mm. end. He thought it was really harsh sounding to his yeah. ears. Yeah. <laughs> that didn't stop him from writing some great flute <laughs> works, though. Oh, man. All right. So we're on to our second classical recording. And we're still not at the clarinet yet because we have uh, violin concertos by Nielsen, Carl Nielsen, one of my favorite composers, and Jean Sibelius, one of my other favorite composers, at least as far as symphonies go. Yeah, um, I think in this recording kind of, even made me remember that, you know, I think Nielsen is my absolute favorite uh, symphonic composer. And he's, uh, he's, yeah. Yeah. The colors of the orchestra and especially, you know, using enough brass, you know, if you're a brass oh, player, you're brass. Always, you yeah. always want to hear the brass. Uh, and what's nice about this is uh, his, his composing for the orchestral parts in concertos carries over a lot of, the same kind of feel that he uses, you know, in his symphonies. Uh, he's not just writing uh, for the solo instrument uh, here. So there's a lot of satisfying orchestral uh, power in uh, in uh, this works. Uh, yeah, I have a special like liking for Nielsen's um, orchestral music myself. I remember the first time I ever heard the uh, Fourth Symphony, mm. subtitled The Inextinguishable. I remember I was in a state of like really low despair like things weren't going well and i i put that on and it just lifted me right out of that it was almost like a giant mm. hand like pulling me out of this hole and it was permanent i never really <laughs> felt that again you know it's just like the, the, it's the power of music right there so I've, I've always been interested in nielsen's music and uh have read up quite a bit of, on him just, just because of that of one experience I just thought of something too. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's kind of a common point that ties this with C.P.E. Bach in that as a orchestral composer, Nielsen has that same quality of sort of rapidly changing keys or moving mm -hmm. to a, an unexpected place more so than uh, other composers do, uh, which can make his music a bit disconcerting at times, but it's always very exciting and yeah. full of these dynamic changes uh whenever he's you know using the full orchestra and and moving through things uh, so he has that kind of uh, unconventional and unpredictableness to his music uh as a character that's a kind of a common point right one of nielsen's whole uh, narrative strategies is to start in one key and mm. um he'll end in a completely different key and he'll give you hints about what that's going to be but you really don't know unless you've heard the piece before you don't really know what it is yeah. so you're kind of in you really don't know where you're going yeah, it's you're kind of carried away you know? i like it I like yeah it i do too uh um yeah beethoven kind of started that idea c minor to c major in the um fifth symphony but he never went from one key to a and ended in a completely other <laughs> one that was uh later <laughs> development um so anyway our soloist here is um someone who the podcast has talked about before right. uh johan dalin on the violin he's only 21 years old and we heard him um 
on uh, the Nordic Rhapsody album that we talked about on August 2nd last year on episode 25, which was called From Moravia Through Scandinavia to Brazilian Sands. <laughs> I'm really glad we got away from this long time. It's too long, yeah. Well, the, 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 now we're getting too much... Uh, too much alliteration i kind of <laughs> yeah I, I i like a little like, all writers like alliteration but the problem is it's overused i feel like we have to get away from it a little bit but we've got some good alliterations coming up i think so we'll <laughs> keep with <laughs> yeah. it for a while they're just least, we just can't resist you know it's just yeah. that, that childish thing you have to just do this okay we are better than the the uh american press at alliteration though i just want to just put that oh, out gosh. there yeah it's pretty yeah, bad they're, these they're the worst yeah, they call themselves writers. Unbelievable. Anyway, Nielsen Sibeli's Violent Show. This is on the Beast label, and if you are, if you have the uh, physical medium, it's an SACD. Mm. So if you have the equipment to play that, you're in for a treat. Although, eh, kind of. Kind <laughs> of. Right. Yeah. yeah, this recording, this album is eh, it's okay, really. Um, I'm a big fan of both works, first of all, I just want to say. Uh, the Nielsen work is, uh, you know, I just talked about how much I love Nielsen, but this violin concerto isn't as familiar to me as the Sibelius, because the Sibelius is a really famous piece that all the great virtuosos mm -hmm. have played. And the Nielsen is really only just starting to get uh, traction, like more um, soloists are starting to play it. Anyway, we start with the uh, Nielsen violin concerto, and it starts with a uh, movement... Now, it's in two movements, and he did this again in his Fifth Symphony. Um, this one was a little earlier, I think, than that. Okay, so this is probably the first go-around for this two-movement, and each movement has kind of two sections in it, so it has this feeling of four movements, sort of, you know? Right. Or they're not four movements, but it's like there's an introduction and then a main section and then another introduction and a main section. Uh, this one starts with a preludium, which really should say Bach to you, okay? Because um, it's a it's a title that Bach and really Baroque composers used. Um, there's an opening chord, and the violin comes in with some impressive double stopping right away. I'm uh, reintroduced here to Dalin's very sweet, and on this recording, very thin mm. tone. I don't really remember his tone being this thin on the Nordic Rhapsody album. I think he was recorded much closer on that one. Uh, this recording is super low and needs to be turned up, which is often the case with Beast SACDs. Mm. Um, I have no problem with that. I'll turn it up. Uh, the recording itself sounds gorgeous, but a little mm -hmm. distant, I think. The cadence into the second theme is led into by Deline with an incredible quietness, and I think this is achieved because of the distance from the microphone. Um, but it's a pretty remarkable uh, sound. Uh, make sure there's no... You're not listening to this when you're in traffic or if you live in an apartment that has traffic outside it. Uh, it's very beautiful. In fact, he gets an impressive whispering quiet tone through most of this section. Gorgeous legato, too. He's a great player, really. Um, I'm also enjoying the clarity with which the individual orchestral instruments are captured, particularly in the bass end. Pizzicati impact impressively, if you've got the volume up. And at 3.39 and afterwards, 3 minutes, 39 seconds point, you can test it there. Uh, the DSD recording, which I listened to on DSD, and spacious... If you're listening to the CD layer, you're not going to get the DSD part. Uh, at spaciousness of the surround, just make the music more enjoyable. Individual instruments have a nice, rounded quality. The bass is especially well captured. 
And again, at 6 minutes and 15 seconds, Darlene's sound is impossibly quiet. It's impressive, but I'm wondering if this would come across in a live performance. It enchants on the recording. Uh, this is a pretty tranquil section of the movement, so there's not much else to say about it. And then we get to the uh, Allegro Cavalleresco section. I really don't know what that means. Uh, cavallo in Italian is a horse. So maybe it means like a uh, horse-like. I don't know. Like, right. I don't know. Riding a horse. It didn't sound yeah, like that. I don't though. think I've seen that one, but described before. Yeah. This comes on much louder. <laughs> There's a big stream between quiet and loud wow. on this, in this recording. I guess It'll it drive means your chivalrous. Crazy. You mean chivalrous? Chivalrous. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Cavaliere. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So in this case, yeah. Okay. That, I get it. So it doesn't mean cavallo because I saw the two L's. And I thought cavallo horse. But yeah, chivalrous at night he would ride a horse. I guess the words are related. Mm. Cavaliere would be the um, right. the the uh, knight or something like that. Uh, this comes on much louder. Chords marking the beginning of each measure as the violin solos. This is much longer than the first section. It's 13 minutes. It's almost 14 minutes long, this, mm. this section of the score. Uh, Darlene's sweet tone here gets some vibrato, but it still sounds rather thin. Uh, it registers on the recording. I wish the solos were more upfront, though. I have to say at this point I'm noticing that. The balance has some more blending with the orchestra, which is not unsatisfying, really. He's The, the engineer is sort of making him... Uh, sort of a part of the orchestra that stands out, I guess, mm. as opposed to like a soloist with an orchestra, like accompanying him. We hear a lot of repeated notes before melodic ideas are launched into uh, with the orchestra repeating a motif, which is a favorite technique of Nielsen. He does it in a lot of his symphonies. Um, by six minutes and eight seconds, I'm hearing phrases that would find another profile in the fourth symphony, my favorite. Uh, Darlene has a cadenza at around the 6 minute and 30 second mark before the recapitulation of the opening material of the movement, which is unusual. Uh, usually hmm. the cadenza comes before the ending cadence. Uh, incidentally, Sibelius does the same thing in his concerto. Maybe it's a Nordic thing. Before their fingers got too cold, they wanted to... <laughs> yeah, they wanted to get it over with. <laughs> Anyway, that could be. Uh, Dalin is suitably athletic here, <laughs> uh, if his sound isn't completely present. he Again, I keep saying this, he sounds far away and quiet. He's more melodic and lyrical at 7 minutes and 45 seconds, uh, and this cadenza goes on for some time. The recapitulation comes about uh, 3 minutes later, at 9 minutes and 35 seconds, and starts with the beginning of track 2. Um, we hear the opening violin material again from track two, not sounding much different here. And this is going to be an issue, I think, with Darlene's playing. He doesn't vary the material much. Like the whole repeat is kind of taken in the same mood as, the, uh, as we heard it the first time. Uh, he handles the athletic passages well, especially those leading to the final cadence. Um, again, I could have dealt with more presence in his sound, and I think that's a fault of the recording. Uh, second movement, which is the third track, Poco Adagio. Again, it's in two sections. This has a lovely slow woodwind opening mm. with a plaintive English horn playing the main melodic material. The violin comes in after a minute with, again, a sweet but thin tone full of live, lovely vibrato. There's a large variation in piano and forte in this recording. The loud parts are pretty loud, but the quiet parts are very quiet. 
This entire movement is in the quiet range and is tranquil in mood. I should say this entire section. Uh, the uh, fourth um, track, the second part of the second movement, is a rondo, which is a repeating theme. There's no cadence to end the previous section. It resolves into the, or maybe that is the cadence, it resolves into the theme of this section, with its rondo theme taken rather slowly and carefully, which I think takes something of its energy away. I, I think this kind of shortchanges us. For, you know, after what we've already heard. Uh, Delene is going for something lyrical here, less than dance-like, which is what the movement invites. It wants to be dancey. Uh, his rather understate, he's understated in his playing here and possibly really throughout the whole work, but I'm really noticing it here. Uh, this section should have more movement to it. At 6 minutes and 40 seconds, Dalin gets another cadenza, played with virtuosity but not much energy. He goes for the lyrical whenever he can. I did like his odd pastoral sound in a droning bass, pizzicato, and double-stopped chord after 7 minutes and 30 seconds. He does these all one after the other. It's really cool. Uh, this section of the concerto as a whole, though, is too slack for my taste. Dalin never varies the rondo theme, which makes it rather dull. And that's going to be an issue with his playing and these, also the Sibelius with me because mm -hmm. he kind of he has that sweet tone, and that's it. He doesn't really vary the tone much. Mm -hmm. And when you have long movements, you really need to do something to keep the listener interested. And um, you can vary your tone, change your phrasing. There are all sorts of little tricks that musicians have. He's He's got that beautiful tone. He's just showing it off all the way through. Mm. Okay. On to Sibelius. Violin Concerto in D minor, Opus 47, one of the big uh, war horses for violin players. This starts Allegro Moderato. It's a very long movement, 16 minutes. It has this quiet, shimmering orchestral opening, which Dalin solos over with a gossamer tone, maybe because he's far away again. I've heard all kinds of different approaches to this, and this one's nice. Mm. He plays this sweetly, which is predictable. Uh, I feel like he doesn't have much variety in his tone, as I said. We've heard this sound throughout the previous Nielsen Concerto. This movement is taken a bit slowly, as though to draw out the sweet lyricism of the themes, which are definitely present. The high note at 1 minute 50 seconds is intoned beautifully, but there's no excitement in it. You don't really feel like the violin is going up for something really exciting. He just kind of plays it beautifully. The sweeping, double-stopped romantic theme at 4 minutes is gorgeous, but doesn't register due to the quietness of the violin in the mix or the actual quietness of the violin itself. You could kind of tell at this point in the recording I was getting a bit annoyed. <laughs> you know, just and it's not mm -hmm. because the Sibelius is any worse than the Nielsen. It's just it's because I had already heard the Nielsen and I'm kind of hearing more of the same approach and I think I'm getting kind of annoyed by that. If you reverse them, the Nielsen would be the piece that annoys you, I think. If you program them backwards. There's an early cadenza again at 7 minutes and 30 seconds of this 60, almost 17-minute movement. This is really early. <laughs> um, Dalin is lyrical here, which seems to be his go-to style. Uh, the cadenza is close to three minutes long. Then the orchestra comes back at around 10 minutes, and we're repeating the opening material. Now, keep in mind, there's still seven minutes of this to go. That's a lot. Mm. So there's going to be a, a coda, you can almost guess, uh, starting at about the 15-minute mark, where the music livens up and heads towards a big climax. Nice orchestral detail in the woodwinds around 15 minutes and 40 seconds. The final cadence doesn't come across terribly emphatically. I'm really amazed at how underplayed this movement has been. 
Mm. It's a little disappointing. Second movement, Adagio di Molto. Woodwinds start this movement too. This is... Um, Sibelius uses the woodwinds to evoke the uh, Finnish um, natural environment. A lot of trees, that kind of thing. He, he, he gives it almost a mystical quality, like this kind of spirits in the trees or something like that. Okay. Anyway, this really beautiful brass just before the violin enters at about 50 seconds. The violin plays its lyrical theme, which uh, his tone is very appropriate here. Um, upwards creeping pizzicati bass appear after two minutes, reminding me that this work was written shortly after the second symphony with its famous pizzicati bass opening to the second movement. To be honest, the whole movement goes by without much variation from the soloist. It's all beautifully played but it doesn't really engage the listener's attention. There's no real variety in it. Third movement, Allegro ma non tanto. This is the final movement. This movement is a real challenge for the violinist. This is probably why violinists like to play it. They get to show off. It's virtuosic display all the way through. Lots of double stopping at the beginning. And here, Dalin has to show us something, and thankfully he does. He maintains his exquisite tone, his exquisite tone, through the challenges and pulls the movement off, but I feel like he's too careful to generate any real electricity. A lot of the passage work sounds prosaic, and the movement is taken at a fractionally slower tempo than we're used to hearing from the great performances of this work. Yeah, violinists, this is a hard movement to play, and violinists will, great violinists will often just go for it and play it at a high tempo, and you're just wowed by the end. Uh, not the case here, though. I like his harmonics, Darlene's harmonics at five minutes, smoothly and sweetly taken. But yeah, even the approach to the ending cadence doesn't generate excitement. So, in conclusion, these are certainly good performances, but I didn't get much musical excitement out of them. There's too much of the same tone, as though Darlene is showing off the beauty of his tone, and it is a beautiful tone, at the expense of expression. The playing is too careful, and that goes for the orchestra, too. No sparks fly. Although there is beauty of tone from the orchestra as well. Okay, it's a nice recording that way. The performances rather bring the works too close to the earth. Yeah, I mean, this guy's 21 years old. Yeah, he's got a long career ahead of him, so. Yeah, and makes he's a you, great player. So yeah, it does kind of make you wonder if they're, with recording these um, very young musicians, they're putting too much of a load of on them, you know, to... Mm. Uh, He's. I think he's Finnish, or Dane. I don't remember. Yeah. But he's. Um. This is really his music, and I can see why he would want to uh, play yeah. it in such. A, I mean, I, I sense what was the, the one last year, uh, Nordic the flow, Nordic right. Rhapsody. But that yeah. was with a pianist. So it's nice that he he wants to uh, you know play this mm. sort of uh, Scandinavian repertoire. But uh, I don't want to expect too much from someone twenty one, especially as we're getting up there, <laughs> in our own ages. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm sure that. Uh, he can only grow in terms of expression. Uh, I felt the same thing about the thinness of tone. Uh, if mm. you know, maybe he does, he does have a sweet and a very pretty appealing tone, uh, mm. but it may be small or it could just be due to the recording, as you say. I felt it was somewhat improved in the Sibelius, uh, mm. like it was a little bit closer to the microphone, uh, mm -hmm. maybe. Uh, I did. Notice, you know, because the Sibelius, there's so many recordings of this. All the uh, great violinists have recorded this. Um, the Nielsen should be recorded more. Uh, I felt, yeah. you know, there was a sort of carefulness 
to the approach. Mm-hmm. So it's somewhat measured, uh, never f- sacrificing the, the beauty of tone uh, for any extra sort of expression, uh, but maybe leaning too much on the safe side, uh, as you say. Yeah. Uh, and there's so many recordings to compare it to. Um, but yeah, overall, n- not a bad recording and certainly sonically uh, satisfying. It's it's a good recording with huge dynamic range. As you said, the yeah. softs of the soft, the soft yeah. of the soft are very soft. Right. And then the, the loud orchestral explosions will be huge. Uh, so there's no kind of compression going on here, and that'll be even magnified more because on SACD the volume level tends to be really low on these yeah, beast ones because they don't so, want to put any compression at all yeah. on that. Yeah, um, yeah, and you know I think the Sibelius is more of a indulgent uh, piece in, especially in the end uh, for you know the violence uh, technical things, and these are two composers that I really like uh, a lot. Yeah, me too. Uh, as symphonic, but I was struck. At how great the Nielsen orchestration is, and uh, like I mentioned before, uh, even in this uh, violin concerto, he's got this beautiful palette of uh, orchestral sounds that is sounds more varied in comparison to the Sibelius. And so, you know, I, I think coming after kind of Sibelius, well, we like uh, uh, Nielsen a lot and von Humboldt, right? Uh, yeah, von Humboldt. Yeah, we will have to. I really wish something yeah. by him would come out so we could just put it on this show and yeah. introduce listeners to him. He's fantastic. He's, to me, those he's an unknown composer. That's kind of like after Beethoven, I like Sibelius, Nielsen, von Humboldt. It's like where yeah. my mind goes to like satisfying yeah. orchestral kind of things. And I was happy yeah. to hear Big that. Bones, yeah? yeah, yeah. I have a recording of uh, this nielsen concerto but i haven't really listened to it much maybe just once and so it was kind of nice to have it with the sibelius here and um yeah i, I wouldn't be too hard on a young performer like this he does have a no i don't either impressive I mean, yeah. impressive uh, technique and, and a sweet sound uh, i think they could have made him sound larger on the recording uh, yeah. the engineers should have uh, worked a little bit better on that but still a yeah, satisfying performance and uh, i hope that uh, since he seems to uh, be getting some attention, uh, and I like that he's choosing these uh, Scandinavian, you know, sort yeah. of centered recordings. So I hope that maybe some first-time listeners will get to hear Nielsen and say, "Oh, you know, why haven't I heard this before?" And uh, yeah, you know, that could be a good thing that comes out of it. But let uh, me give a recommendation: if you want to hear any Nielsen at all, listen to recordings by uh, the San Francisco Symphony. Yeah. Conducted by Herbert Blomstedt. Stett. Yeah. This, Those this are the concert, ones, yeah. I forget who the soloist was on that, but they recorded this as well. Mm. And they recorded his six symphonies, and they're just fantastic. Listen to the ones on the DECA label. Yep. That okay. sets the standard there. There's been a few yeah. new ones and a couple other ones around that time, but uh, that's the, the gold yeah, that's standard the, for great Nielsen. performances, yeah. yeah. I want to say something, by the way. We have a lot of American listeners, and I'm sure they know something about baseball. Um, so... If you're, like, say, a solo violinist, like, um, with a, this beautiful sound, he's just showing off this beautiful sound, it's sort of like being a pitcher who has a great fastball, but that's the only pitch you can throw. <laughs> and it's just so fast that you you, know, you can get a lot of batters out, but uh, no they know what's up. coming. No so they're eventually going to figure yeah. it out, you know? And that's I feel like that's what happens. If, you, if you're constantly playing with this sweet tone and you're going to play for, like, you're going to hear two pieces for an hour. Pretty soon, you're just going to know what to expect, and the music isn't exciting anymore, you know? Mm. 
so I th- that's kind of how I felt about it, you know. But uh, I don't want to, again, I don't want to put Darlene down. I do like his playing. Yeah. And I really want to hear him as he goes on. He's very young. But uh, you're in, you know, that's the way I felt about the record. So there you go. Okay, here we go. The big highlight. Go with the flow, <laughs> baby. Go with flow. the flow. This album is called Flow, F-L-O-W. Yeah, not the woman's name. Like, Oh, yeah. Hello, Flow. the woman's name. Yeah, Flo, get me a coffee. No, not that one. <laughs> not the girl from Queens, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is, um, <laughs> there's so much to say about this. The, the, the soloist name is Annaline Von Wawa. Wow. Wow, yeah. yeah. I, I kind of wish you could, I could just say Annaline Van. Wow, because that would be the coolest name ever. She's The the eh does kind of yeah, come Van out a little wow, bit at the yeah. end. And wow, she's wow. playing not the clarinet, but the Bassett clarinet. Now, that's a clarinet. It's a little bulkier than a clarinet. And it can play, I think, three, maybe five, I don't know, lower notes than the clarinet can. So it has the whole range of the clarinet. But it can get down a little lower. And any reed instrument that can go lower... Uh, is fine with me and mm. uh, works very well on this particular recording. She's accompanied by the NDR Radio Philharmonie, uh, conducted by Andrew Manns, the British violinist and now conductor. This is on the Pentatone label. The title of the album, Flow, F-L-O-W, um, is due to Van Wauw's feeling that both the practice of music and yoga... <laughs> Can yoga, you heard that right, uh, can lead into a flow state. Okay, mm. so that's what she means by flow. Thankfully, uh, she's not talking about what women usually mean when they talk about flow. So oh, it means no. a mental s- <laughs> <laughs> that, that took a while to land, huh? Oh. Okay. What it means is the uh, mental state in which a person performing some activity is fully immersed in a feeling of energized focus leading to full involvement and total enjoyment in the activity. Actually, rappers talk about flow, too, like when it's really happening yeah. for them. Well, you know? now this is something interesting mm. Um, mm. Uh, about music. And uh, as a musician, I think lots of musicians probably have experienced this. Um, you know, w- when you learn music, there's sort of different stages. Uh, there's reading off from the page right. uh, where you're just kind of doing a mechanical kind of uh, action. And then... There's when you have music internalized and then it doesn't happen all the time, but when you're really sort of uh, engaged fully in a performance, uh, it's almost as if you become beside yourself mm. and you're watching yourself perform the music. Uh, it's yeah. almost as if, uh, you know, the music plays you as it were. Right. And I think that's the the flow state um yeah and, that happens uh, to athletes as well yeah. like when they're really on you know like yeah. their basketball players just keep hitting baskets from everywhere and yeah. um, pitchers just find their in baseball find their and i know. think yeah and i've heard like um composers and jazz musicians talk of this too that as they feel like they become just a conduit for yeah. you know these ideas that are coming from somewhere else and and they're writing them down but they don't actually maybe feel that they're um, being generated within themselves, but they're more of a receiver uh, for these kind of things. But I have to say, um, I, I can really appreciate that music one. But the yoga thing, uh, <laughs> for me, a person who has no lateral flexibility, uh, <laughs> you know, um, I actually have pretty good like 
you know, vertical flexibility. I can, you know, lock my knees and put my palms on the floor, which isn't too bad. But uh, if I had to go side to side or assume any of these poses, uh, mm. that just wouldn't work. I think uh, I think I did too many squats and deadlifts uh, and bench presses back uh, when I was young. Back, and so my, back in the day, yeah, yeah. I just um, I just can't uh, get my chakras aligned. Yeah. Well, I don't think that has to do with your chakras. I think you can. Oh, really? Be, yeah, I think you can be a big fat guy and have your Wasn't chakras. Wasn't that a pop singer? Right. It's possible. What? Chakra Khan. Wasn't she a pop singer? Sh- Chaka. Oh, not Chakra. That's okay. not, not Chakra Khan. Chakra Khan could be a new, a cool new uh, comic book hero, though. I think if anybody wants to uh, okay. create that. I was mixing my metaphors there. <laughs> yeah, that's what happens when you get older, I guess. I don't know. I guess so, yeah. I've, I do that a lot too. <laughs> anyway, this is a this recording is uh, kind of got a uh, odd combination. We've got uh, Mozart and yoga, which don't usually <laughs> go together. But. Well, the yoga is a composition by Wim Hendricks, who's mm. a Flemish composer from Belgium. Oh, right. Okay, we'll get to that when we get to it, though. Mm. Uh, I, I do want to talk about the cover photo before we get to the music. It shows uh, Van Wawa uh, standing in profile with her left hand forming. A um, mudra. She's got her um, thumb touching her middle finger. I think because I can't see her pointer finger. Her, you know, mm. it's um. So 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 I don't know if the, if both the the fingers are touching or if only one is. So I don't know what mudra that is. I, I can't really tell. Oh. Anyway. Yeah, I see that. Because uh-huh. you can't see where her pointing finger is i think it, it could be touching the thumb or it could just be bent behind it and you just don't see it you know? yeah or, or but th- those are two different fingers. mudras though so you can't i can't i don't it want looks, to say what it means it actually looks like she tell. only has four fingers um yeah, in the photo make, it looks like she has which four would make fingers, it really yeah. hard to play clarinet <laughs> i know i'm sure the other thing is that she might be mm. like it's the angle this yeah. might be obscuring it she might be touching her thumb with that too mm. anyway Vanuawa says she's hoping that through this recording to induce a state of flow in us. Uh, I'm hoping she succeeds. Let's see. All right. First, we get the uh, Mozart uh, clarinet concerto. Oh, one of my favorite works ever, as are many of Mozart's pieces. I really love him. Um, This in A major, K622. This was written in 1791, the last year of his life. Um, a lot of people like to call it a late Mozart work, but we got to remember Mozart died at 35. Mozart didn't think of it of a late work, as a late work <laughs> when he was writing it. So <laughs> that's really inappropriate. He probably figured he had another 35 years to live at least. All right. But alas, we lost all that music. Anyway, boy, music history would have been really different if Mozart mm. had lived another 35 For years because sure. Beethoven and him probably would have been duking it out. I don't know. Anyway, this uh, amazing concerto, which was originally written for the Bassett clarinet, and it's wonderful to hear it here. A lot of um, Mozart's melodies go into the deep, low end of the instrument, and in the when it's written, when it's performed by a regular clarinet, those are transposed upwards, and they're less satisfying. I really like it more when it's played by the Bassett clarinet as it is here. All right, so in the Allegro... Um, Manz's orchestra, Andrew Manz's orchestra, sounds pretty small. The opening orchestral introduction has an intimate feel, and it's beautifully paced. Detail is easily audible. 
A lot of the material in the bass that echoes from the high strings is highlighted. And these are details I hadn't noticed before in other recordings. Uh, Van Wawa plays with a gorgeous, smooth tone. I liked this right away. She takes the opening notes of the orchestra as the orchestra did with a slight staccato on the first phrase, um, which is not the way I'm used to hearing it. Usually it's all legato. Uh, at 2 minutes and 70 seconds, we hear the first Bassett clarinet notes. Well, the low notes, the ones that only the Bassett clarinet can play. Uh, the instrument goes lower than the clarinet. You hear it again at the 3-minute mark and on runs going up from the low end of the instrument at 3 minutes and 8 seconds, if you want to check that out. Van Wauw's phrasing is light and attractive. There's a nice pregnant pause at 4 minutes and 28 seconds in the exposition. Um, subtleties of phrasing, such as the detachment of notes in the upward rising figure after 5 minutes, are particularly pleasing. The development starts at 5 minutes and 54 seconds. Remember, this is a sonata form movement. 5 minutes and 54 seconds is pretty late <laughs> in the mm. movement. Um, another 6... Around 6 minutes 30 seconds, the clarinet hangs out at its bottom end, and I love the resonant sound it makes here. There are also some lovely low-end frequencies at 7 minutes and 30 seconds. The recapitulation of the opening material that we heard at the beginning starts at 8 minutes and 31 seconds. We hear the low end of the instrument at 10 minutes and 30 seconds again. I was mesmerized by the performance in this movement, despite one or two odd things. I, I took them on. I liked them. Balance is fairly even between the clarinet and orchestra, with the clarinet forward enough that you can hear it when the orchestra has the theme and it's playing mid-range figuration. Second movement is very famous, Adagio. It's just this wonderful melting movement. Probably what... Uh, uh, oh, who, who wrote MacArthur Park? <laughs> who is that guy? Oh. Wichita Lyman. Oh, man, I can't... Who's, who's the uh, writer? Jimmy Webb. Jimmy Webb, right? Yeah. Probably. I imagine Jimmy Webb had this movement in mind when he wrote when he was thinking of MacArthur Park melting in the dark. <laughs> Just my idea. Never Jimmy have Webb, that recipe believe. again. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about that song is recipe has to be the most unmusical word. Yeah, there is. It's three syllables. It just doesn't fit in. Ugh. Oh. <laughs> Now, now you got to get me started. Yeah, I got this, it man. stuck in my head now. Oh my! I love the way it goes. I'll never have that recipe again like it. And then he goes, "Oh, oh no!" no. <laughs> <laughs> like it's like this huge tragedy. Sure, Richard <laughs> Harris saying that, didn't he? Wow! <laughs> what a weird, a weird musical thing. <laughs> All right. Anyway, I'm a huge fan of Jimmy Webb, but not oh, yeah. of MacArthur not Park. MacArthur okay, Park, yeah. I, I really do think Wichita Lyman is one of the best oh, great song, songs yeah. ever. You know, and Jimmy Webb is one of the great songwriters ever. But you know, we all have our yeah, everybody, <laughs> low everybody points. Everybody has a bad one once in a while. Yeah, okay, a bad hit song. Oh man, yes, it was still a big hit. We still, I still had to hear it a lot when I was a kid. All right, so anyway, the Adagio. This Adagio is just melts, and it starts out exceptionally well. It's a bit slower than usual, with the orchestra gently undulating as the Bassett clarinet's liquid tone outlines the theme. I enjoyed the gentle, barely audible, but present back and forth ticking of the orchestra strings at 2 minutes and 30 seconds as the violin plays its theme. Notice after 3 minutes and 30 seconds how the Bassett clarinet takes an upward run from its low range 
and Ma the Andrew Manns draws out an imitation of that low note in the basses. I really loved that detail. Um, it's a, it, there's a, this movement is full of lovely details, in fact, uh, in, this, in this performance especially. The gorgeous false cadence, and I'm a big fan of false cadences, as I've mentioned already earlier, at 6 minutes and 23 seconds is beautifully taken and registers completely at this slow tempo. You just feel like something that somebody was going to give you is just taken away. Oh. <laughs> I like that. I love the. I don't like it when it happens in real life, but I like it when it happens in music. All right. I love the pacing from that moment onto the final cadence, all slow and soothing. This is just a fantastic performance of this movement. Third movement, Rondo, Allegro. This, in contrast to the Adagio, is at a regular speed or slightly faster. It's got an upbeat pastoral dance-like quality here. It's in 6-8 time. Again, I love the tone at the lower end when the first episode's theme is repeated by the clarinet after a minute and 30 seconds. Also, um, Van Wauwe's ability to quieten without losing her tone after two minutes and 30 seconds when she repeats another theme. I like the honks Van Wauwe gets after four minutes in the low notes on the octaves before she starts on a melodic theme. After four minutes and 45 seconds, we hear the rondo theme again, and then it quickly darkens to minor in a surprising, dramatic episode. Well put across here. We're back in high spirits at the end as the piece ends on a strong tonic. This is one of my favorite works by one of my favorite composers, and this performance was fantastic. One I will definitely return to. Okay. Hard act to follow. And uh, Wim Hendricks, well... <laughs> <laughs> What are you going to do? You can't, you know, it's, this is just, you can't really follow this. So you have to do something totally different. So Flemish um, composer, Wim Hendricks, he's um, from Belgium, based in Antwerp, and he was born in 1962. So he's around our age. He's older than both of us, really, but he's around. Mm. He's close. This piece is called Sutra, which is really, you know, it's taken from Hinduism and Buddhism, this word is used. Uh, concerto for Bassett Clarinet Orchestra and Electronics and there's yeah. no year of composition for this piece apparently it was finished in 2022 for this recording hmm. or 2021 which is I, I don't remember when the recording was made I, I, I can look it up anyway this piece is based on breath which is appropriate for the clarinet uh, yogic philosophy and meditation and I say, why not? I said this before I heard the piece. Uh, not enough music has been dedicated to this pursuit in the West. We need more themes, and I think yoga is as good a theme as any to write about. I'm sure. Oh, it was. Um, yeah, this was recorded in November 2021, so I'm guessing that this piece was composed or finished in 2021. Okay. Uh, the piece was commissioned by BBC Radio Three in England, and the in Britain with the. Borletti Buitoni Trust, and the premiere took place, um, it was supposed to take place on March 31st, 2022, I assume it did, uh, just a month ago, so it's new to the world, this piece, really. Throughout the work, the electronics, which were developed by Jarrett Taminga, create a spatial atmosphere and unify the separate parts of the concerto as a whole. This is the booklet notes talking now, not me. The work is said to create a profound connection between the performers and the audience through sound vibration. 
Ugh, sounds new agey. I hate it when people talk yeah. like this. <laughs> Where's my mood? Anyway, ring? yeah, I'll, I'll be the judge of that. Okay. Anyway, let's see. The first movement is called Pranayama, Breath of Life. Okay, this is, these are all yoga breathing terms here. Pranayama is the practice of controlling the movement of the prana or vital force, usually through the control of the breath. Okay, so the music here centers around one note, E, and there are a lot of noise sounds in the orchestra, like sighing woodwinds, brass players blowing air in their instruments, strings bowing on the bridges, and others. And uh, you need a quiet room to pick up the beginning of the work because of the earthy, breathy sounds. Um, it's very quiet. There are distant chimes as well. It sets a nice, mysterious atmosphere. Um, I and it was it's a really appealing sound overall. I thought it was really cool, kind of soothing in a way, and also mysterious. Uh, we finally hear a string instrument, probably a cello, at a minute and thirty-five seconds, uh, playing melodic figures that more or less repeat. Now, uh, the the whole idea of this is that noise becomes pitch, so it's sort of like uh, the world or you know the you know, form coming into being around you, I guess. Um, there are drooping figures from the winds uh, that are kind of disturbing. Mm, okay. Mm. That sound always kind of disturbs me. Then there's this really cool harmony around 2 minutes and 45 seconds that bends in and out of tune, kind of like wavering. Um I like it. It kind of reminds me of like an experience I had in a in a meditation. Here I go, getting all new agey on you now. Uh -oh. Or I had this kind of like image of like just everything around me just kind of – you know how like when you look on a really hot day, everything looks like it's kind of like Are you sure that wasn't an acid the, trip or something? It, it could have been, oh, but have these been. things happen in meditation too. So it kind of reminded me of that, and I was kind of like digging that somebody had put this into the score, um, the, the the waveringness of uh, material reality. Um, the, the clarinet finally, like it's not stable somehow. The clarinet finally comes in near its low register at three minutes into this seven minute and 40 second movement. It hovers there and doesn't really stand out until about three minutes and 30 seconds when the orchestra momentarily drops out and gives it the spotlight. It's repeating low register figures are reminiscent of the clarinet's figures in the Rite of Spring. This reminded me of Stravinsky a bit here. It settles on a more extended melodic figure, and the movement never gets harsher than Stravinsky's ballet. So if you're looking, if you're wondering how much of a challenge this is going to be, if you like the Rite of Spring, which is a pretty harsh-sounding work, but familiar to us all now, it never goes beyond that as far as, like, uh, ear-splitting sounds. The soloist <laughs> and orchestra start chanting the word pranayama at about 4 minutes and 50 seconds. Uh, I'm not a big fan of this uh, chanting in a, a musical work. I kind of want the composer to um, put the things across, the idea across musically with tones, okay? Mm. And I feel like... I don't know. It just becomes practice here, you know, the, the practice of uh, meditation. Then the clarinet plays its highest register for the first extended period of time. I, I mean, I don't want to complain about that. It's what the composer wanted, but it's just my feeling about it. 
The atmospheric haze returns suddenly at 5 minutes and 52 seconds. Uh, the clarinet and some other wind instruments flutter over it. By the end, the clarinet's material has a sense of urgency. There are some pretty cool, unsteady sounds from the orchestra in interesting timbres. The movement suddenly ends as the clarinet cuts off its line. So pretty intriguing so far. I rather liked this movement. Second movement, Diana, meditation. Diana is the continuous flow of attention towards an object. So concentration, really, I guess. Although the next movement is concentration. Yeah, okay. I think it's more focused concentration, though. Okay, so you're aware of something, really. I guess that's what Diana is here. The movement introduces a meditative atmosphere using various types of bell sounds. And the basset clarinet expresses this meditative state through free, arabesque-like phrases that lead into a section during which a large sustained chord is gradually built up by the orchestra. Um, okay, we have here bells over an unfocused haze, then droning sounds from the orchestra. The clarinet comes in and plays a line with either chromatic notes thrown in or microtones. I couldn't tell given the uh, context. But it sounds a little off, mm. and it's in a good way. I rather, rather liked the sound. It was kind of exciting. It sounds out of the ordinary and is compelling. Meanwhile, bells are chiming in the background as the orchestra provides a light droning effect in an odd harmony. There's more chanting by the soloist after two minutes, this time of the word diana and other words. And then there's a multiphonic sound from the clarinet, and it's pretty cool. You can hear it at just after the 2 minute and 30 second mark. Uh, that's one clarinet playing that. It's just a split sort of um, sound, like sounding like multiple notes, but they're kind of really... It's, it's, it's almost like someone just shoved a fork into the clarinet sound and split it up into a lot of different shards of sound. Um... Let's see. Uh, the clarinet follows up the multiphonic sound with brief figurative fragments. The chanting resumes. It strikes me that the soloist is pretty, pretty busy in this meditative movement because um, th she has to chant and play the clarinet. Not at the same time, but alternating. At 3 minutes 30 seconds, the clarinet is back to fluttering figuration. We hear more multiphonics from the clarinet just before the 4-minute mark. To me, this whole section with the droning background makes it feel like we're in the mysterious world of the observing mind. All unstable and uh, mysterious. At 5 minutes and 45 seconds, an ostinato bell-like pattern is heard in the orchestra, and the clarinet gently plays circling figures over it. The texture changes again at seven minutes, where we get a lower chime and some distantly wind-like howling in the low winds and strings, I think. The clarinet comments in its low register, circling around a particular note, and the piece suddenly fades. It's a natural fade from the, um, the players. I do want to say, though, the, the chiming effects are really welcome in a piece like this. They're really pretty, and I think add a lot of appeal uh, to the piece, which otherwise might seem kind of weird. <laughs> Third movement, dharana, mind concentration. Dharana is the binding of the mind to one place, so you're really focused on something. Um, this is an explosive, energetic movement with measure changes and rhythmical gestures. The clarinet virtuosically dialogues with the entire orchestra. So this starts aggressively with a loudish wind figure, a loud, loud-ish wind figure in the orchestra. It circles a lot, and the clarinet plays differently 
different but similarly shaped material. So the winds and the clarinet are all sort of circling around each other. The timpani outline a syncopated beat. This is a high speed movement and I like the sound of the woody percussion played at this tempo. It kind of sounds like, you know, rain falling in a <laughs> forest with a lot of like hollow trees in it or something. You can hear them a lot after a minute and 30 seconds. So go to that point. The rhythm suddenly stops at around four minutes and we hear a brass figure ring out like an obnoxious fanfare. The clarinet honks out a similar melody at around four minutes and 40 seconds. It's now isolated and this is the cadenza. The percussion starts up again after five minutes and 10 seconds and the movement picks up energy as the clarinet plays a circular pattern. Um, it says there are tablas in this um, movement, but I couldn't hear them. Um, they seem to be far in the back, and I didn't pick them up on my... I didn't listen in headphones, and I couldn't pick them up at the volume I was listening to on my speakers. But I did like the solar plexus hitting bass on the very last note. Turn up your volume for that. You get a nice clearing of the heart <laughs> chakra with that uh, yeah. bass hit there, especially if you have a subwoofer. Is there a heart chakra? There is. Oh. Yeah. There are seven chakras. One of them is like over your head. It's not even in your body. Huh. <laughs> wow. Samadhi, the fourth movement. And uh, this is a pretty famous word. Intense spiritual union. This is um, where you become one with the universe. Okay. This is the this is the, the, the movement where the, the 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 Buddhist monk goes up to the hamburger stand and tells the clerk, "Make me one with everything." Ugh, okay, we'll let that one go. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the, samadhi is where unity, okay, union with uh with God, with the entire world, with everything there is. Where the concentrator and the object become one. Okay, the highest state of mental concentration that people can achieve while still bound to the body. So apparently after we're dead, it even gets better. <laughs> That's reassuring. Yeah, something to look forward to. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> All right. Heavenly, there's a heavenly beginning with brief harp glissandos and gentle strings like we're in a sacred garden. This is really pretty. I, I felt good listening to this. Uh, the cello plays a figure. And we hear the clarinet circling in its high end. Uh, this sounds prayer-like to me uh, in a really appealing way. Lots of bent pitches from the clarinet from a minute and 45 seconds on. Also from perhaps the bassoon. A rhythm starts up around 3 minutes and 45 seconds with the clarinet circling around in its lower register as the orchestra provides atmosphere. The soloist starts chanting the word samadhi, which kind of... I mean, if I started ch chanting the word samadhi, it would be okay. But I feel I don't <laughs> want that happening on the recording. I don't know. She starts chanting this, the word samadhi just before the five-minute mark. It's part of the composition. Then starts playing a fluttering melody again with other wind instruments fluttering around her. That drooping figure comes back again in the clarinet and woodwinds. We get a lot of circling from the clarinet and strings afterwards, as if seeking a home tone to perch on, or perhaps observing all before it. Uh, there's a shimmering backdrop of quiet bell tones blanketing the back wall of the piece as the soloist and orchestra play. At the 8 minute and 45 seconds mark, the clarinet settles on a single note that's repeated, then circled around. 
The Samadhi chant returns, chanted only by the soloist at 9 minutes and 25 seconds or so, and the piece ends with these words. All in all, I enjoyed this piece. It's very different from the Mozart, but they oddly fit well on the same recording. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. Yeah, I thought so. I didn't feel like jolted out of my seat by this. I saw the video promoting the release of this album, and Van Wawa seems an enthusiastic soloist. I'm rather delightfully surprised that Manz's handling of the orchestra, especially in Sutra, a new work, he usually conducts he conducts like he's made for this type of music, as well as the earlier Baroque and classical periods that he started his career in. It's a bit of an adventurous listen, but one worth hearing. I liked it. I'll revisit it. I do want to say I'm not a big fan of the chanting in this work. I think it would have worked well without that. Uh, but that's me. I'm more of a musical purist. And I, when I hear an instrumental work, I really want it to be instrumental. Unless there's going to be singing in it like in Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. But um, there you have it. That's what he. That's what the composer did. And it's a, pre, it's a work worth hearing, I think. Um, I think it'll appeal to a, quite a few people with uh, slightly adventurous ears. Yeah. I'm <laughs> less enthusiastic. Uh, it's okay. It was so you something haven't spent different. time in the uh, in the uh, in the yoga studio. That's why. No, I have spent time in India. Um, oh yeah, yeah, and, but and uh, but uh, yeah, not being a yoga kind of person. Uh, I don't know all this I'm, new. I'm not a yoga. Uh, I have issues with yoga people. That's the thing. <laughs> yeah, me too. The yoga itself, I like though. It's okay. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's all right. It's it's definitely uh, something different, some interesting stuff. Uh, not be, I'm not a big fan of chanting or uh, recitations mm. uh, so much in any style of music. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, um, some interesting orchestral textures, uh, pitch play, sometimes disconcerting, I... but sometimes creating a new atmosphere. Yeah. Um, yeah. It intrigued my ear, I have to say, a lot of this. You know, uh, I was up for hearing something in contrast to the Mozart, and I got it. So uh, <laughs> You certainly did. Yeah. Hey, you know, check it out. I made it to the end. It's uh, it's not that... Uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> compared to a lot of uh, twenty, late 20th and 21st century uh, music, it's actually a pretty uh, easy listen. Uh, you can follow along the, what is uh, being aimed at, and uh, the recording notes are actually kind of helpful to understand the concept. But compositionally, there's enough structure there, and uh, it's easy to see what they're aiming at. And it gets the clarinet yeah. doing some kind of interesting things. You know, clarinet is, um, well, I'll talk more about this in a moment, but it's yeah. kind of a boxed-in instrument in a way uh, that most people have only heard it in you know certain contexts so i think it's good to uh, have that instrument heard uh, doing some different things different techniques and in a different setting and it sort of liberates it from its sort of um, you know traditional kind of uh, concept that it it can get sort of pigeonholed into so in that sense yeah why not align your chakras with some uh, clarinet yeah I wasn't in a state of samadhi once the uh, piece ended, but uh, maybe it'll happen one day. We'll see. You didn't get a Joe Rogan third eye on your forehead? Or? Yeah, the, the, the third eye didn't appear. <laughs> didn't appear yet. It's still yeah. asleep. Yeah, it's only the first listen. I listened to a few okay, more Okay, it'll happen soon. Yeah. I'm still waiting. All right. Well, 
yeah, it's all well, clarinet from here on in. <laughs> Clar- continuing on that, you know, uh, it was just one idea. I've got such a huge list of uh, things to listen to in jazz. And I said, well, wow, I've got all these clarinet recordings. And why that's interesting is, you know, the history of clarinet in jazz is kind of an interesting one. Clarinet was one of the main instruments, you know, in early jazz in New Orleans because, you know, the New Orleans music culture had uh, brass band and marching kind of tradition. So you started out with, you know, trumpet, trombone, clarinet, uh, saxophones. But clarinet played a big role in New Orleans stories, so-called Dixieland jazz, right? And that carried on over into the swing period, you know, the king of swing, right? Benny Goodman. Mm-hmm. And so you had, a, a you know, clarinet, you know, having a big uh, main role in uh, the big band era too, with uh, a lot of uh, band leaders and soloists playing clarinet. But something happened uh, in modern jazz. You know, once uh, bebop came around, uh, the clarinet was largely uh, abandoned in favor of the saxophone, uh, you know, with notable obses- uh, exceptions. You've got like um, Buddy DeFranco and, you know, later on... Uh, Someone were a big fan of Eddie Daniels. Uh, But largely, when we hear clarinet these days, it's sort of like an an additional sort of uh, part of the arsenal of woodwind players who are mainly sax players. And, you know, so we don't hear it as the main instrument on recordings often enough, which is a shame uh, because it certainly has all the capabilities of uh, saxophone as a main voice, although, you know, it doesn't have quite the, the breadth of presence uh, and fullness of tone, but it is a lovely instrument. And so I just happened to be getting a bunch of recordings on my list with clarinet, and I said, you know, clarinet's something we should hear more of in jazz, and so let's take a listen to a few of these. And uh, yeah, so that's uh, the plan. We're going to start out with one that will probably slip under the radar of most uh, jazz listeners. Uh, I so think all three of these would probably still slip it, under yeah, the radar. It could be. But, you know, that's my purpose but, here. But they shouldn't. I, yeah. I'm digging yeah. deep uh, in the new releases. I'm spending almost an hour every day searching through things that come out to find interesting things. Uh, because, you know, the level of musicianship is uh, very high around the world. And there's lots of things going on. Uh, internationally that uh, it's impossible to keep up on everything but i'm doing my best here and so for our first clarinet trip we're going to go to spain and we're going to uh, look at a clarinetist here arturo pueo and uh, this is a self-release it's his own uh, release so that's another reason why it probably won't show up uh, on uh, the radar of a lot of uh, jazz uh, press, but uh, this is Derroteros, which I guess means something like roots or mm. like, uh, you know, paths of travel or something like that. And mm. uh, so we've got uh, his release here. Uh, also with him on this recording, uh, Rodrigo Ballesteros on drums, Tomas Merlo, bass, uh, Seir Caneda on piano and uh, Pueyo on clarinet and uh, also the uh, compositions and 
direction of the musical material here. And he's a Spanish clarinetist from uh, Ibiza. And uh, he's got an interesting collection of songs here. I also got some guest players here. We've got some sax and trumpet and uh, a little bit of vocal on here too. I, I thought this was an intriguing recording. Uh, we start out with a tune called Ala Ido. Uh, this features Daniel Juarez on tenor sax, uh, Miron Rafajlovic on trumpet. Uh, this one starts out with a nice little ostinato bass groove. Uh, throw in some clicky drums to form kind of a Latin beat. A lot of the beats on here are sort of more what I would think of as, uh, you know, uh, Central South American kind of uh, rhythmic. They, they kind of suggest a Latin beat. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, not full on, but they're not getting all those in percussion instruments. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they're, they're uh, you know, more even beat, although there is some swing in here too. Anyway, this the beat one has gets, a cowbell too. Yeah, cowbell, more <laughs> cowbell. Uh, the yeah. beat gets started on this one, and then sax and trumpet come in on a rather kind of muscular minor theme. There's some cool ornaments, uh, little kind of turny things on it that are cool. And then uh, what's nice here is. Uh, that uh, Puyo has also got the bass clarinet in his arsenal. and so That's always this, awesome. Yeah, on this tune, uh, he comes in on bass clarinet that has an answering line to the trumpet and sax. So it's a kind of nice three-horn combo. They go around the melody twice, and you want to hear it again because it's a cool uh, little uh, melodic exposition there. The horns then trade solo phrases uh, from bass clarinet to tenor to trumpet. There's a lot of space here. Uh, because there's no chordal instrument on this track, which I thought was nice. Actually, the whole mm -hmm. album is sandwiched that way. Uh, we don't have any chordal instrument, so the horns uh, have to you know, fill in a lot of the harmonic cues uh, other than what the bass gives them. The solos are spirited. They gain intensity until they tie back into another round of the melody with a nice little outro to finish it up. So a cool start uh, to this recording. Yeah, the bass clarinet. By the way, do you remember the movie Godzilla, the first Godzilla movie? Oh yeah. Uh, the bass clarinet features prominently uh, when Godzilla appears. You know? Yeah, yeah. You remember that? It's yeah, always, it's always I'm, in its low end, you know, sounding really forlorn. Unfortunately, it gets heavy. pigeonholed like the bassoon for sort of uh, yeah, you know, conjuring up these kind of ominous or uh, scary yeah. kind of things yeah yeah i'm talking about the 1954 godzilla right. movie the first time godzilla ever appeared not the new american ones okay and uh track two uh dot 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 y sin poderlo remediar i guess it's something like it's unable to fix or yeah. <laughs> can't be repaired or something like that without being able to remedy it yeah uh yeah. I guess there's nothing you can do. Forget yeah. about it. Uh, anyway, <laughs> it's a, so it starts with a light drum intro. Very relaxed Latin beat. Uh, pretty melody comes in, and he's back to regular uh, standard clarinet. Uh, Pueyo is here. Uh, and then we get piano on this piece, so Caneda is in, and we get some chord action happening. Uh, Pueyo has a kind of fast, quivering vibrato sometimes. It gives the piece kind of a nostalgic uh, feel with that kind of shimmering sound. His approach is relaxed uh, and lyrical, but it's energetic in feeling. He builds a chain of rising notes into the upper register in this solo here. Kaneda has a nice relaxed piano solo here with trickles of notes. And there's also a melodic bass solo by Merlo. Uh, he has a very 
pleasing rounded kind of bass tone. Uh, when I go through all the solos, then Pueyo goes once more through the melody uh, for another pretty playthrough. So I wonder what they needed to remedy or fix, because it sounded pretty good <laughs> here. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that's just the title. Uh, and we've got uh, tracks three and four sort of go together. Uh, three is Intro a Anansi, and four mm. is Anansi. So Introduction to Anansi, and then itself... Uh, I'm guessing Anansi is someone's name, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, sounds like a name. The intro has some intense clarinet soloing over a long held rubato chords. That gives way to some drum soloing that's an intro to the next track. And then the drum continues, forms a fast beat for Pueyo to introduce this melody over some dense accented piano chords from Kaneda, who is also up for the first solo. Uh, Ballesteros shifts the free drumming uh, to a fast swing, uh, changes up, and Kaneda is there in the groove with his piano solo lines uh, over Merlo's walking bass, ending up with some bluesy kind of descending figures, and then it's off for uh, Pueyo to take over. He's more aggressive here. He's got some kind of post-boppy uh, solo phrases on the clarinet, gets up in the higher register. They hit a kind of vamp thing that gets going for Ballesteros to get started with some drum soloing. Then he simmers it down and the piano comes in with some chords to make an ending for the piece. Uh, next we've got, uh, let's see, oh, this is the piece with the vocalist, uh, Roqueta Sammeora Roca, and uh, featuring Angela Cervantes on uh, vocals. Uh, this is a big rubato intro on bass clarinet, so <laughs> yeah, enjoyable here. A lazy waltz develops out of this with Pueyo playing the melody uh, until uh, Cervantes starts the vocals. She's got a kind of a breathy alto voice. Uh, she pushes the vibrato on some more intense phrases. There's a lot of uh, contrast in this piece in uh, the feeling of the vocals. Pueyo adds lines in the vocal gaps uh, and in an interlude between uh, verses. Uh, Cervantes continues with a big climax push uh, and there's a big pause before the final ending. So a uh, nice little vocal piece in there. I wish my Spanish were better so I could understand what it's about. But It's really pretty. Yeah, yeah it's nice. I don't know that this is, um, this looks like it's, the title looks Portuguese to me, but I can't yeah. really tell. I tried to put it in, but it didn't come out as in, <laughs> yeah. translation from Portuguese I don't know not sure yeah. I don't know what it is it's some um, yeah. it's definitely not straight Spanish it might be yeah. Catalan too could I'm be, not yeah. sure yeah. Uh, six Moral uh, this is a hard driving swing one here uh, Puyos, uh plays the melody on clarinet the beat changes up to a Latin beat over kind of a modal chord section uh, it's that swing Latin and then traditional harmony to more modal contrast it always it always sounds great in jazz, and it, it just drives the soloists to change up uh, between right. the two. Kind of goes back to the hard bop uh, period when you know it was used all the time. Uh, Pueyo handles the contrast nicely in his solo. He drives hard on the swing sections, and then he gets some cool harmonic tensions on the Latin, more modally things. Uh, Cervantes is up for some hard swinging on his solo here, too, which is intense. He really hammers out the chords underneath. Uh, and Pueyo comes back for another round to close it out. Uh, track seven, uh, we've got another guest on this one, which is called uh, Encan 
Dilao, uh, Ariel Bringues on tenor sax here. Uh, starts with a rubato clarinet and sax over piano kind of cascading together. Uh, chords that start out on the piano there too until uh, Ballesteros gets a Latin feeling beat rolling along. The sax plays the melody with Pueyo adding answering phrases. Uh, Pueyo has a sh very shimmering solo here with tight tumbling rhythmic figures uh, in his lines. Uh, Bringuez is more breathy and breezy in his solo, uh, still matching the mood of the piece though. Uh, they get rubato for a while while weaving the sax and clarinet lines over a bowed bass and piano, and Bringuez finishes it out with his kind of breathy, relaxing uh, style. Uh, so another player joining in the mix here on this tune. Uh, track eight, No Aperques en Dobla Filava. I didn't uh, translate it. I don't know what it means. I did. I said, don't park in a double line. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice yeah, title. I, I put this into Google Translate. Okay. Uh, this is a happy little melody line uh, yeah. that has kind of questions and answers for itself, uh, mm. which is cool. It goes back and forth. It's clarinet over a bouncing beat. It's got a nice little bridge section in the tune, too. Uh, Pueyo works a lot in the lower register here before he takes it up higher in his solo. Lots of good swinging energy. Uh, also, Cervantes has a solo, clearly articulated notes in fast lines and some nice rolling chords. And uh, Pueyo runs through the bouncy theme once more to close it out. It's a fun, energetic piece. Yeah, it was and fun. Track Speaking nine. Of fun, energetic pieces. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pedala Soul. Uh, this is a cool one. Uh, some solo clarinet intervals and phrases. Uh, make an intro to this very pretty tune. A delicate Latin beat forms on drums with nice bass pulses added to it. Pueyo carries this melody on clarinet with very nice articulation. Uh, Merlo gets around sounding but rhythmically tight bass solo added in there. And then over to Cervantes, who's got a lot of variety of rhythmic patterns in his piano solo. Then Pueyo, who gets flowing lines and also mixes up the rhythmic feels really well on this one. Uh, shows off his upper register uh, tone and then brings it back down softly uh, to die, tie into the melody once more. I think I put the uh, video of this on the Facebook page. Uh, yeah. So if you come over, you can uh, link to that uh, little nice studio. Yeah, yeah, nice composition. And uh, let's see, is this the last tune? Yeah, it is. Uh, ten, Un Año. And... Uh, this is the sand, the bottom bread of the sandwich, like the first tune, a pianist piece, uh, bringing back uh, Daniel Juarez and Miron Rafajlovic, uh, tenor sax and trumpet. Uh, fun and funky right from the intro here. And the, so we've got back to bass clarinet with the two other horns. And the bass clarinet and bass are in unison on an intro line, which is a cool combination. Uh, the bass continues on with an ostinato pattern as the tenor sax and trumpet get a slinky melody line. Uh, there's an interlude starting with the tenor and then the clarinet and trumpet jump in. Trumpet and sax form another line and bass clarinet and bass do an outro to that. Uh, like the first tune, as I said, there's no piano and the horns trade solo ideas over the perpetual bass and uh, Ballesteros drumming. They work up to some intense interplay and fun harmonic ideas and return to the slinky melody line, uh, work to the end with some variations of bass clarinet and bass on more choppy figures that are interspersed 
with trumpet and sax phrases while Ballesteros plays it up on drums until a final phrase with the trumpet screaming it out up an octave uh, for a nice hit of an ending. So uh, it's a fun album of clarinet and bass clarinet. I like the uh, programming, the sandwich of pianoless tunes of the other material. It's got mostly Latin-y, Latin-y feels. So these are Spanish musicians uh, mainly here. Uh, but there's a good mix of swimming, swinging and uh, hard bop kind of intensity to the tunes. Uh, we got one vocal tune too. And yeah, Pueyo sounds uh, really nice. He's got a lot of enthusiasm. The in- arrangements are engaging. And uh, yeah, this album, I hope more people get to hear it. And I, I want to hear more from uh, his clarinet playing, especially uh, with the bass clarinet mixed in too. Yeah, a fun listen. Yeah, I was very happy to have heard this album myself. It's it's a very appealing album. Um, another another one of these albums I never would have heard. Yeah. Were we not doing this podcast, you know, it's, you know, nice little surprise. The yeah. clarinet has a good sound, shapes his phrases beautifully, and he gets like this autumnal French feeling when he plays ballads. Now, when I talk about when I say French, what I mean, they pay attention to timbre. In, in French, so you get this real sense of the melody fitting the clarinet and you know making the timbre like, carry the piece, yeah. stuff yeah. like that. I really enjoyed that about his yeah. playing. I especially like the bass playing on this record. He's got a thick, present, upfront sound that I found very appealing, and his solos were well formed and had good content. So mm. between the clarinet and the band, of course, the bass clarinet always, you know, bass clarinets are always welcome in in my place. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That was great too. It's yeah, nice. so I listened to the bass player too. I really enjoyed his playing. Yeah, it's good. He's got that shimmering sound on clarinet sometimes. You know, it's yeah. uh, got uh, it's like very fast, almost tremolo kind of uh, kind of thing. Yeah, with it. yeah. yeah, it's nice. Uh, I was uh, happy to find that. All right, yeah, now we're going to have the uh, oddball recording <laughs> to go well, a little bit weird. out there. It's very weird. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I was just drawn to the instrumentation. Uh, knew nothing about. Uh, this group we're going to go to jump over to germany uh how do we pronounce this we're going to butcher some names here jörg 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 Schippa, Schippa. i guess yeah unbending unbending yeah uh, unbending jörg yeah. Schippa's unbending that's the name of the group yeah unbending it's got a t at the end you gotta unbending. say that consonant uh and there's new uh that's the name of the group their new recording tanzpalast and yeah. uh, this is on the uh, the record, another record label like the Berriondi. We were, I'm sure you've all heard of it. Jazz House Music. <laughs> That's a great name. Yeah. It's a great label name. Yeah, just stuff all that together. Jazz House, I guess so. Jazz House Music. Jazz House, house Music. music. Yeah. Jazz house, jazz house music. music. <laughs> right. Um, and so I was just uh, intrigued with the instrumentation here. Uh, and so uh, Jörg Schippers the, the, and the description of uh, this album was interesting. So, uh, Schippa's musical horizon is enormously broad. His playing structures combine extensive influences and listening habits of improvising musicians such as Miles Davis, Jim Hall, Ry Cooter, Jimi Hendrix, or composers of Western classical music such as Bella Bartok, Igor Stravinsky, Olivier Massian, Jorge Ligeti, and Alfred Schnitke. So it's a big uh, combination. All all adult music favorites, I I might mention. Yeah. So how do you get that all with bass clarinet? I don't know, but that's why I decided uh, to take a listen to this one. 
Um, yeah. And uh, he describes his uh, his uh, current work in uh, contemporary jazz as avant-garde and serious music. Quote, perhaps the current state of my music could be described as that of enlightened contemporary music in which purely sound painting components can be found as well as odd meter grooves. <laughs> Unquote for a minute. For sure. <laughs> Back to the quote. <laughs> Bizarre melodies and unusual harmonic structures. Uh, oh, wow. And uh, yeah, I, I would agree with all of those things about this yeah. recording. Uh, very unusual. Uh, we've got... At, uh, at least he didn't say that he was going to uh, make a connection between uh, the performance and audience through sound vibration, you know. No, no. But by odd <laughs> meters, uh, he may Maybe connect <laughs> or disconnect you. Uh, <laughs> However yeah. you feel. Uh, so we've got, let's see, Jürgen... We, we will connect through sound vibration. Oh, Jürgen Kupke on clarinet, Florian Bergman on bass clarinet, Jörg Schippa on guitar. Uh, I have to a lot say... A Jörgs in this group, huh? Yeah. Okay. I have to say he's a very... Uh, on guitar like guitarist uh he he's rather <laughs> he rather lays back and lets the clarinets play a lot and christian marian on drums uh now other than the unusual music on this uh, recording uh, we've got some pretty weird titles too so the first one i, I believe is <laughs> pronounced jungle but that's capital d capital j u-n-g-l-e so like dj, DJ. Uncle. yeah um, anyway, in there too. it appropriately starts with a kind of jungle type beat on the drums. Uh, now I'm going to do my best to talk through these, but uh, yeah, this is I, my notes on this are really, yeah. really long, yeah. and it'd be like the Beethoven last week where I'll lose my way. Yeah, halfway I started through. to like, give up, so I can yeah. just kind of give you a basic kind of thing. There's a lot of so many things changing in these tunes too. Anyway, after the jungle remember, beat, remember yeah. the CPE Baca. Piano uh, fantasy oh, yeah. we heard. This is kind of like that, except yeah. like the rooms are a lot smaller and there are a lot more of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So we start out, get this uh, jungle beat going. Clarinet and bass clarinet start the melody. Finally, Shippa adds some guitars, uh, chords underneath. The bass clarinet switches to a bass figure, uh, which is kind of cool on this album. It happens a lot. Uh, it just becomes the bass instrument. Uh, yeah. And the clarinet goes off on its own line. Uh, the guitar adding another line uh, to the bass rhythm uh, with the drums dropping out. Uh, they join in for another line with the drums then. Uh, Shippa takes over alone uh, over the drums uh, for some rhythmic fast-picked guitar improvisation. The clarinets come in softly underneath for some backing lines. And the beat falls apart uh, to some free clarinet exchanges. Bass clarinet gets a new rhythmic riff going here and the clarinet joins in on that so some fast uh, unison clarinet lines lead back to the drums returning and everyone going around a uh, new melody theme uh, so yeah you get the idea of what you're in store for a lot of uh, kind of uh, changing pieces yeah yeah it's a lot like this also you said that the rhythm falls apart that's something that happens often <laughs> yeah. on this album yeah, that's does. a good way to put it yeah. it just really sounds like it just it just yeah. collapses it loses steam yeah. or it's like somebody unplugged something yeah. and it all just kind of yeah. goes over the yeah. side of the curb and yeah. uh, that's it okay let's see uh, what do we got here Stolper next we Jung have Stolper Jungchen Stolper Jungchen yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, this one another drum beat this one changes up which, feel. Which I, I, I just want to say, I plugged this into the uh, translation, oh. and it came out as Trippy Boy. Oh, wow. 
<laughs> I really don't know what, if that's accurate. But I don't know. It's an interesting translation, though, yeah. Yeah. Stop reaction. Anyway. Trippy boy. <laughs> yeah, Jung Chen I would be... Chen is kind of something... Hmm. You know, it's it's a young person, you know. Yeah. Maid Chen would be like a young woman. Okay. Like a, you know. It is trippy. The whole maiden. album is kind of trippy yeah. here. Um, yeah. Get a drum beat. Uh, changes up the feel and joined by the bass clarinet. Uh, both clarinets and guitar then get together for kind of an angular melody. And the drum setting under that is very clicky kind of beat uh things get mysterious soon with longer clarinet lines and guitar chords eventually a kind of new groove develops between uh marian's drum and uh, shippa's choppy guitar chords the bass clarinet and guitar form syncopated hits for kupke to solo on clarinet he gets intense and honky until it all pauses and resets to the original melody and a final uh, kind of sp spiraling ending to it. Uh, then we're off to the title track, Tanzpalast. What does that mean? Any idea? Uh, Dance Palace. Oh, Dance Palace. Okay. <laughs> um, Dance Palace. That's not what it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> Denny Terrio. <laughs> there you go. Um, this one um, has got some interesting meter things going on. Uh, yeah. I gave up trying to figure out what's actually happening, but uh, begins with guitar arpeggios and clarinet lines. Uh, bass clarinets, the bass clarinet adds a lower legato line, and finally the drum beat gets added. It feels like it's in five eight, wow. and then it switches to six eight, uh, but then other things change up. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to see what the chart looked like for this, but uh, the drums get some work over. One wonders if there even was a chart for yeah, some of these I pieces. Know. I don't know how they could remember it, uh, if not. Uh, the drums it, get it some work. It might be improvised, but you don't know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there is there is structure to these things, but yeah, yeah it's kind of uh, hard to... Hard to you know, and find out. A few yeah. listens, yeah. Uh, the drums get mm. some work over repeated long bass clarinet and guitar notes. Clarinet comes in on top with a more rhythmic line. Uh, it comes to a stop on a long note, but then the clarinet sort of resets with rubato lines that are soon harmonized by the bass clarinet. Everyone gets back to the original idea with the theme, changing meters and drums, stopping phrases together uh, with the others. Uh, so uh, interesting, challenging listen there. Track four, Na Nu Nu Na. <laughs> That's capital letter, small letter, capital small. Na nu nu na. Uh, slow drum figures knock out a strange beat with clarinets interjecting lines. Uh, it's a strange and unpredictable pace of what's going on here. The intensity kicks up with guitar adding lines sometimes. Uh, the rhythm dissipates in a mercurial soup of clarinet lines, short guitar figures, and drum textures pours around a large bowl of a piece. Uh, a rhythmic <laughs> riff of intensity develops in the guitar and bass clarinet, getting the drums pumping again. Shippa goes electric then with some heavy effect-laden but bluesy-tinged guitar lines. And finally, the clarinets take over for the final section to the end. Uh, yeah, I wasn't expecting those electric guitar effects, but uh, right. Woke me out. I, this this kind of led me to the idea that one of one of the uh, the uh, goals of this project was to using the word explore to explore mm. all of the uh, sounds that 
the instrument it's possible for the instrument to make because they really yeah. do seem to be going for yep. any kind of expression that they can get out of their yeah. individual instruments in some yep. pieces you know yeah there's a lot of exploration here yeah. uh, track five uh baby bop so yeah. or bb b no because well it's like b it bop be bad b yeah capital b e capital b i capital b o and the german it's probably bad b baby pop baby bop, baby bop. Yeah. uh this one clarinet and guitar work together for the intro line and then bass clarinet gets a bass line of syncopated ideas going turns into a strangulation of the clarinet on a solo over drumming uh and strange guitar figures the bass clarinet brings back uh, the bass figures, and then the next section features some strange bass clarinet, low tone, and kind of overtone multiphonic uh, plays here. Uh, that turns into sounds of tonguing and breath, aided by strange guitar string rubbing. <laughs> and finally, <laughs> they all join back in for a run through the theme, ending with some flutters. So, uh, so there you go, timbre, techniques, you know, whatever, yeah. you know, yeah. exploring the instruments. Track six, Las Gehen. Las Gehen. Let Gehen. go. Gehen. Yeah. Las Gehen. Let go. Las Gehen. Let go. Let it go. You know? Let it go. <laughs> A slow yeah. clarinet theme, working with the bass clarinet over rhythmic guitar figures on this one. It's almost pretty, actually, here. Uh, the closest this album gets to maybe pretty uh that won't last for long though because a faster <laughs> more rhythmic theme develops and a new bass clarinet bass line and a guitar get a kind of modal progression going for the clarinet to solo over comes back to more unison rhythmic lines in the clarinets and a final dirge of oh, slowing God. drive to the end with a surprising final chord uh this one sticks out as a little bit different here yeah, um, it kind of runs out of steam again. It, yeah, it, it falls. Yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of it's kind bro- of dirge of lack of energy at the end, and uh, not Rumpelstiltskin, but Rumpelstiltschen, which which very well might be the way it's Rumpelstiltskin written in, in German. German, yeah. yeah. Uh, this yeah. one starts with closely harmonized clarinets. I think we got some seconds. Uh, coming out here for a little dissonance. Uh, run along over drum and guitar rhythms. The beat disappears. Uh, for some freeform clarinet conversation that develops into a synchronized line. The return of guitar and drums comes soon. Uh, Shippa takes some strange guitar lines on his own uh, before the clarinets drive on to anarchy and cat screams. Yeah. <laughs> Next to, I know that the, yeah. the opening melody has this kind of goofy hopping quality yeah. to it that really kind of yeah. bugged me too. <laughs> After that, the clarinets and guitar are back with a slow theme over some metallic scratching sounds and it ends on a long held note. Uh, strange. Uh, track eight, Der Lurch. <laughs> uh, like Rumpelstiltskin himself. Yeah. Der Lurch is, it's, I, I've got this translated as the amphibian. And, the amphibian. Uh, that's, mm. that's what it said. So. Interesting. There you go. Uh, big drum beats and bass clarinet start it. The clarinet and guitar joins in with uh, counter ideas. The meter and rhythm constantly change up and stop. <laughs> bass clarinet <laughs> get a, gets a free exposition of low tones and chicken clucks. And clarinet and guitar add some answering ideas in snaking lines as the bass clarinet becomes more frenzied uh, Hmm. and finally returns back to the odd rhythmic thing from the beginning for a bit ever unpredictable to the end. Yeah. And we'll end it all up with Am Grat. On the ridge. On the ridge. Hmm. Guitar starts it out 
with a series of slow figures that are joined by bass clarinet. Uh, clarinet adds another line to that as they move together lyrically. Uh, the drums interject and jolt with unpredictable rhythmic figures that synchronize the others. Shippa hmm. builds up tension with some guitar improvisational doodles and figures getting faster and more frantic, as do the clarinet lines laid on top. It slows to a stop, and the clarinet leads the way to a softer and slower final passage that goes to the end. Well, this one's guaranteed to get you out of your comfort zone in some way. Unpredictable changes, <laughs> strange time signatures, uh, nothing totally melodic. Uh, but if you like something experimental uh, and unique instrumentation, two clarinets, uh, bass and regular, um, you know, playing around with uh, kind of different elements of sound and time, yeah, could be up here early. Uh, I was amused by it. Uh, I, I wasn't <laughs> relaxed word. by it, but uh, it was kind of interesting, uh, kind of cutting edge, uh, you know, with modern jazz uh, experimentation, probably influenced a lot by modern classical uh, things as well. So, yeah, a little bit out there, but... Uh, yeah, I kind of feel like uh, that the that CPE Bach uh, fantasy for solo piano that we heard earlier, right. it was written in the... Uh, late 1700s or so or the mid 1700s mm. and then 200 years later this is the natural <laughs> evolution of that yeah basically uh yeah unpredictable going into different moods lots of exploration i found this album strangely compelling i was locked in from the beginning <laughs> and completely frustrated by my inability <laughs> to get a handle on any of it mm -hmm. yet i enjoyed the whole sound and the varying rhythms of this Although I feel like it fell apart in the last three tracks, they kind of got into these kind of goofy, playful rhythms that I kind right. of didn't appeal to me somehow. Yeah. Um, I love the combination of clarinet and bass clarinet, of course. The guitar sound was welcome. Uh, the whole approach was unique and complex. Um, it's hard to know what to make of it, really. The <laughs> compositions seem to be made up of various smaller compositions that are related sometimes and unrelated at others. A pleasant, enjoyable... Never offensive challenge. Yeah, you know, it it didn't stress me out. Let's just say that. Yeah, uh, uh, not 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 one to listen to after you put your feet up after a hard day at work. But uh, it's not terribly off putting or anything like that. No, so. no. Yeah, it's just unusual. And I'll go out on a limb for some bass clarinet. So um, yeah, me too. Yeah, overall enjoyable. Yeah, and now uh, probably the one of the most mainstream uh, piece here. Uh, although hardly a uh, recognized enough player, but he's got uh, yeah. some uh, big-name sidemen, and uh, it's kind of a dedication album. Uh, we've got uh, the clarinetist Harry Sculler on Sunnyside Records, Living in Sound, the Music of Charles Mingus. So it's mm. a dedication uh, to the great uh, composer and bassist Charles Mingus. Yeah, now, someone whose music I really can't get enough of either. So Yeah, always interesting. Mm -hmm. Still sounds fresh even when you listen to yeah. the old recordings today. So Scholar, uh, he's a New Yorker. Well, Syracuse, New York, anyway. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he's from upstate. Like, truly snows uh, a lot there. So like yours sure truly. practiced a lot. Yeah, yours <laughs> truly. Uh, he's also a professor of woodwinds at Berkeley College of Music. Uh, In Boston. Yeah, with his own uh, music degree uh, from there and then a master's from uh, New England Conservatory. So, you know, all the big schools uh, here. 
And um, uh, I like this quote that he has uh, here. Uh, this is from his own homepage, actually. Uh, Scholar understands the clarinet's endangered species status in jazz. And in his own <laughs> expressive way is working to reverse it. Uh, the clarinet, this is quote, the clarinet is a very difficult instrument to stick with in a group. He explains people can step all over it. Uh, oh, so, you know, it could be, you know, it just doesn't have the full force of the saxophone. So it needs to have a little kind of protected environment for it, maybe. Uh, anyway, um, he was impressed at a young age uh, seeing uh, Mingus live in person at Syracuse uh, University, uh, the university's Jabberwocky Student Club. And uh, it was uh, a very uh, powerful uh, experience for him musically. And uh, so uh, here, uh, 40-some years later, uh, he's got a collaborative effort here to uh, uh, dedicate something to Mingus uh with uh, focus on arranging and uh, including strings uh, here too. Uh, so the uh, he's got a let's see who's the producer here Walter Smith the third I guess was the uh, kind of a catalyst for uh, producing and getting this album together. And uh, so we've got some interesting arrangements going on here uh, by uh, Darcy James Argue. Ambrosaki Musire, the trumpeter, and uh, Fabian Almazan. They were kind of selected by the arrangers and scholar and the producer Smith, and they sort of gave the arrangers free reign uh, to be experimental and do what they wanted to do in the arrangements. Um, and the musicians we've got uh, involved in the recordings here are, of course, scholar on clarinet, uh, Kenny, the great Kenny Barron on ah, uh, piano. Always adds a nice touch. Uh, probably uh, in the most busy and uh, amazing bassist around today, Christian McBride uh, on acoustic bass. Jonathan Blake on drums, who we've heard on the podcast before. Uh, Jasmia Horn on vocals, uh, up-and-coming uh, new vocalist. Uh, Nicholas Payton on trumpet, another big name in the jazz world. And we've got a string section. Uh, Megan Gould on violin. Uh, Tomoto Omura on uh, second violin, Karen Waltuch on viola, and Noah Hoffeld on cello. Uh, so a full uh, jazz palette along with strings. Um, so we'll go through here, uh, starting out with a real famous, one of the most famous Mingus compositions, Goodbye Pork Pie Hat. And uh, the arrangement is by Fabian Amazon on this one. Uh, it begins with a somewhat mournful string intro, uh, over sparse piano, bass, and drums. A scholar comes in with the melody on clarinet with a very rich and warm tone, uh, especially his lower register is very full. Uh, and it sounds like the cello doubles his melody line while the other mm -hmm. strings are doing their own thing in the arrangement. So I thought that was a nice uh, arranging touch. Usually I can do without strings in jazz, uh, but they're kind of very well done uh, here and in the album in general. So I don't find that they detract too much uh, from the enjoyment of you know the regular jazz part. Uh, Scholar's solo on this tune explores a lot of different feelings, catches the sadness of the melody, but also sort of channels some angst, uh, pushing into the upper register with some edgy tones uh, and lines also. There's a string interlude 
and an understated piano solo by Barron uh, that he takes enough time to develop uh, when the strings drop out too. Uh, so I like that the strings sort of give some uh, space away to the other instruments in the middle. Uh, Scholar comes back for another run through the melody and the strings coming back partway through his uh, solo uh, to the end. I, I like the arrangement. There's enough space in it. It's not too thickly done. Uh, so uh, nice opening track. Uh, let's see, track two, Peggy's Blue Skylight. Uh, this arrangement is uh, Darcy James Argue. Uh, rhythmic figures of three beats and string bowing from uh, riffs from Psycho. <laughs> uh, form the intro for yeah. this one. <laughs> if you remember the movie, uh, those right. famous figures, they form oh, part unforgettable. of... unforgettable. <laughs> yeah, they perform part of this uh, intro here, but it's just getting things started with a little humor, maybe. Uh, Scholar uh, comes in with long-noted phrases, and soon he's on to the melody over some stop time, and then things get swinging and the whole mood lightens up a lot. Uh, there's a lot of little rhythmic change-ups that keep things interesting. McBride has a nice bouncy bass solo. Sculler has some soloing interspersed with string interludes. He varies the register and tone a lot, beginning warm and low, then coming up higher. Uh, Barron's piano solo on this one is very rhythmic. Lots of pushing left-hand figures that drive uh, what he's doing in the right-hand uh, melodies along. Uh, he gets a long time to play, sometimes with the strings adding backing uh, for his solo. Uh, Scholar comes back with the melody, winding it up with a surprising rising line uh, before the intro figures and the psycho returns to stab you once more before the tune uh, is over. It's a little psycho sandwich there. Uh, then we've got psycho sandwich would be a great name <laughs> for a great name for a album of a band yeah. or something. I don't know. I can think of a lot of good covers for the album too. Mm -mm. Uh, another argue arrangement uh, of three. Uh, so this is. Uh, kind of Mingus's dedication to Ellington and now going back to him uh, Duke Ellington's Sound of Love a pulsing string intro over tight bass uh, changes to more legato uh, kind of things to make a lush sound bed uh, for Scholar to blow the pretty melody in the lower register there's some interesting contrasting pizzicato and legato backing string parts here some itchy scratchy string figures too uh, uh, it may have you scratching at your neck collar but then Scholar gets space to play uh, only over McBride's bass uh, and the strings fade out uh, before they come back in again continues on to the end with a few nicely placed pauses for a nice pretty ending uh, then we've got uh, track 4 uh, another Amazon arrangement uh, Remember Rockefeller at Attica uh, so this one uh starts swinging along from the start with Scholar and Peyton working on the melody in unison. They split off into different lines. Uh, things break down into uh, repeated rhythmic figures before uh, between piano and clarinet. Uh, then there's some freeform clarinet with added uh, voice multiphonics uh, uh, to that was kind of cool effect. Uh, Peyton and the strings join in with kind of creepy descending lines. It comes to a stop and resets to the beginning theme after the drums get it going once more. Uh, Peyton gets his trumpet solo here. He, he has a lot of uh, clearly articulated notes and rhythmically spaced out figures that build up tension. Uh, the swinging continues with the Baron piano solo and then uh, Scholar finding himself in a playful mood uh, with kind of 
nice uh, phrasing that goes over the normal bar lines. Uh, so he's uh, kind of being adventurous in his phrasing. Then the swing music fades over some dreary string figures that bring in a news-like uh, narration on the 40th anniversary of uh, Attica prison uprising, uh, including some uh, Nixon, President Nixon audio recordings <laughs> about uh, the racial nature of the uh, prison uprisings and uh, some eerie strings close out uh, the tune. So. Yeah, I wasn't happy about that because the clarinet, they faded out the clarinet solo and yeah. he was really... Yeah, yeah. Blowing. I to hear it was more really good. He, it, he was a fantastic. I wanted more yeah. of that solo, you know? Yeah, I mean, and it's a it, soundboard it fade, you know, it's uh, fading it out too. So, yeah. I don't know. I knew, I I talked to a couple of people that had been in Attica. They were not nice guys. So, uh, but, uh, <laughs> you think it's just the whole, uh, yeah. the whole town is sort of like that? Could be. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, then we go to uh, track five, uh, Newcomer. This is uh, Aki Musiri's arrangement. Uh, and he, he seems like he's having a lot of fun with the strings here, maybe too much on this uh, piece. Uh, mm. It's a busy rhythmic string arrangement that sits under the uh, plaintive clarinet opening. Sculler makes it float and sing uh, over a very nice uh, piano accompanied by Baron. Uh, the strings continue on with some rhythmic pizzicato mixed among the legato bowing. Uh, there's a little rhythmic string interlude before they cut out. Uh, for some uh, piano by Baron. Scholar's up next for a lyrical solo. Uh, again, very nice phrasing that stands out here. The melody comes again, and it ends with an extended rhythmic string arrangement. Uh, there's a lot of strings going on in this one. Yeah. Uh, maybe too much. Uh, track six, uh, Moves, which I guess is uh, a tune Mingus did, but the composer, I think, is Doug Hammond. And the arranger, again, uh, Almazan on this one. Slow rising bass piano note figures sit under sparse clarinet and trumpet lines uh, for an intro. Uh, Jasmia Horn is featured here on the vocals. Uh, very nice phrasing and enunciation that's very clear on the unusual melody line. Uh, the, the melody, if you were to just think of the pitches, would be a little bit strange. Uh, so it allows you to focus on the lyrics a little more. And she adds a nice touch of vibrato to her voice that I thought was appealing. Uh, it's sparse, no strings, just a few weaving clarinet and trumpet lines around the vocals. She fades back with some vocalizations, and then McBride steps forward to work on some tight bass improvisation. Uh, over which Scholar floats some clarinet lines uh, before it, it comes back to it. Just a short vocal phrase that uh, she adds before Peyton comes up for a trumpet solo. Uh, he blows uh, some clear, higher note lines. Uh, then he gets a little bluesy, hands it off to Scholar, who's uh, a little bit more abstract in his solo with some angsty ideas over a rhythm that's now changing. Uh, then the clarinet and trumpet join together with the voice, uh, it's unison, but uh, the actually her vocal is an octave lower. So it's a kind of nice combination of sounds uh, that's working together uh, lyrically, more legato over the busy shifting rhythm and drumming uh, that then quiets kind of suddenly uh, and the bass for an ending uh, with that too. So uh, an interesting piece. Uh, I thought she would sing more or get another verse, but it sort of think, becomes yeah. more instrumental. But a uh, nice arrangement, and we get a little break from the strings there. 
Uh, track seven, uh, back to uh, Darcy James, argue arranger of Sue's Changes. Uh, this, <laughs> this is a really long piece, uh, almost mm. 13 minutes. And Changes is the words here. Uh, right. that, uh, so we get an intro of clarinet intervals, uh, sort of the motif that this is built off. Uh, Peyton joins in on the interval idea. The cymbals kick it into a swing and a melody emerges comes to just clarinet over bass with some string plucks thrown in. Trumpet joins in on a slow legato theme with a faint string backing. Then a new slow swing beat starts but soon changes up to faster uh, and feels that will keep you guessing while the trumpet and clarinet work together. These changes, as the title uh, indicates, they just keep coming as the tune goes along. Right. The, the rhythm changes, the, the tempo changes. That's the whole kind of... Uh, idea that's going on here keeps uh, you guessing keeps you guessing Peyton brings the interval idea back for the start of some soloing together with Scholar it gets a bit wild uh, then a new slow start for some lyrical Peyton playing it doesn't stay still for long with more rhythmic surprises popping up at every turn Peyton gets to stretch out and surf over the accompaniment amusement park ride that goes on underneath uh, and he finally works <laughs> up into a nice frenzy uh, there's a little reset for Scholar to make a new slow theme start uh, and then he's joined by Peyton as the rhythmic fun and games begin once more uh, they work together through the theme tightly almost to the end where they split off onto their own improvisational lines which kind of slow down you think it's going to slow and there's a final burst of energy that comes back up for the ending well it's almost 13 minutes long uh, and uh you know, it goes through all these constant changes, but it's a lot of fun. The strings on this one are there, but they're very subtle and more in the background. Uh, they don't stand out in the arrangement. Uh, track eight, uh, Akimusure's arrangement of Invisible Lady uh, starts with a string intro for a melancholy melody from Scholar. Uh, it's a slow ballad, but there are some rhythmic bass and piano figure interludes between sections of the melody. Uh, the beat changes up, uh, it kind of doubles, it changes in character and doubles up almost like it's going to become a samba or something uh, a few times, but then it deflates kind of back to the original tempo. Uh, Scholar gets some warm bubbles at the start and end of his solo. That thing we always talk about, that... Yeah, I love that, yeah, that low clarinet sound. Clarinet. Yeah. So he sort of... One of my favorite things that instrument can do. Yeah, he has it at the beginning and the end and a kind of high soaring lines in between. So it's kind of like coming up out of the bubble bath and, you know, mm. jumping up <laughs> there. Kind of image that I got from it. Um, uh, Baron has a kind of tasty but sparse piano solo there. Uh, strings add backing, and after a little rhythmic bass figure, Baron continues on for a bit before Scholar returns to work through the theme again. Uh, the strings add some pizzicato touches before they close out uh, vamping on the bass figure. Uh, I get the feeling Aki Musiri has discovered strings a lot and he likes to uh, do a lot yeah. of things with them. Uh, but I like the pizzicato touches uh, in there. And uh, the album uh, finishes off with uh, something I guess they did really down to the wire last minute, uh, which is a Scholar original. It's uh, the shortest tune on the album. Uh, no strings here. It's called Underdog. Uh, it's kind of an amorphous uh, kind of piece, but it is it is pretty. Uh, 
a rhythmic bass in, uh, solo intro from McBride starts it out. It uh, works into some open double-stopped intervals. I think it's like fourths and fifths you'll hear. Uh, Scholar brings in the rubato melody line. Then it swells and flows, showing off his tone while McBride keeps kind of pulses going underneath. As I said, there's no strings here. Uh, Baron makes a transition on piano with shifting kind of piano figures that uh, move around harmonically. Uh, mixes it up a bit before Scholar comes back with kind of more uplifting themed lines. Uh, underneath that all, uh, Blake keeps free-flowing drum textures going, but they soon dissolve and disappear uh, and it fades out. So it's a pretty but amorphous and mysterious kind of piece that ends uh, before four minutes comes up. Uh, that's it. That's the album overall. It's a pretty and heartfelt tribute to Mingus with uh, interesting arrangements, some surprises in the rhythms and directions of tunes. Uh, you've got an all-star lineup of musicians here. Uh, kind of interesting uh, addition of strings, uh, where normally I would prefer no strings, but they kind of make it uh, a little bit unique. Uh, so I'd say, uh, yeah, a must-listen for fans of uh, Mingus's music and uh, clarinets uh, fans, too, will really enjoy this album. Uh, Scholar's tone is uh, inviting, uh, great technique, and uh, masterful phrasing of melodies. You know, when I heard this album, for me, the clarinet, piano, and bass stood out, and I didn't know who the players were when mm. I heard it. So I looked them up. I was like, oh, this is really good. I wonder who this is. And of course, it was yeah, Kenny Barron, who I really yeah. like. Yeah. So And Christian McBride, Christian McBride too. Yeah. So I, I, I like both of them from other yeah. albums. So right. wasn't really surprised. Well, I was, well, I was delightfully uh, surprised yeah, delightful. to learn it was right. them, but because I thought I was maybe discovering someone new. But no, yeah. as expected. Yep. Um, yeah, they all solo and play tastefully, and that really makes this whole album. Um, the album does have strings on it, which I'm really never a fan of in jazz. I think it just brings me back to all those, like, uh, you know, Mantovani recordings from yeah. the 1950s or whatever. Yeah. But because uh, a lot of – they tried to class jazz up by putting strings on it back then, and I just thought it always ruined the whole feel. But here, they're, they're kind of – there are less of them. They're not massed strings, so they're not mm. – you know, it doesn't really bother me here. They're kind of interesting, I thought. And um, yeah, I like Mingus's music a lot, so I thought this was pretty great. I liked it a lot. I want to hear more albums like this, actually, you know, with Mingus um, pieces on them. I also want to say the um, Goodbye Pork Pie Hat, which is probably Mingus's most famous composition. I didn't want this to end. I thought it was mm. just really a beautiful performance. Yeah, um, that's nice. Yeah, I was kind of like, oh, there has to be more, another track. <laughs> I just wanted that to be the whole 45 minutes. It was really great. So at least sample that, I would say. Yeah, yeah. That's a standout track, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, we did a lot of clarinet tonight. Yeah. There you go. Get your fix All of right. that for a while. All right. Not a not an unappealing instrument by any means. No, so I no. really like it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of fresh sound and jazz. It's an and instrument, too, that too. Yeah. I find, you know, every performer has their kind of own unique tone and uh, yeah. approach to articulation so it's it's kind of easy to uh, identify a player once you get uh, used to their sound uh, it's a personalized sort of tone to the instrument which i like uh, hmm. yeah good to hear well okay. um 
Yeah, that was interesting uh, combination of different things, mainly focusing on clarinet. I think uh, next week we've got something a little bit different uh, in the yeah. works. Some, okay. uh, we're gonna do some. We're gonna, we're gonna get to my uh, my paisans over in Italy. Yeah, or, some paisans, yeah. some Italian yeah. focus for next week. And, uh, I could do uh, I could do Italian classical. I got a few of those piling up now. So some pretty interesting finds actually. Mine are all going to be kind of like off the beaten path things, so okay. uh, it should be interesting. It won't be like anybody famous. And I've got a, a list of uh, a lot of Italian jazz recordings. Facebook. Yeah, Italian jazz yeah. recordings that I want to get out. Uh, it, Italian jazz is really cool. I really want to encourage yeah. people to listen to some of that. It's really good. Great jazz scene in Italy with some you know, great uh, musicians. Uh, I think... Yeah, Italians. Of course, you could say it. Hey, they invented the music, uh, all music. By that I mean, uh, <laughs> well, they in, would in say way, that. But yeah, they would say that. You know, the Greeks would differ, of course. But yeah. uh, no, I think um, you know Italians. So, so would literally everybody else. Yeah, but I think Italians have a big uh, open mind to all styles of music, and they adapt yeah. and uh, bring what they already have to other styles of music. I'd so, say that's truer now than yeah. it was in the past. Anyway, yeah, could be. That. But especially yeah. what I think I find in jazz music is they bring a high level of technique uh, largely developed through classical well, music. Well, the most important thing, too, in Italian music is melody. So this whole, yeah. like, bringing out a melody and just shaping it beautifully is really yeah. the one of the key things in Italian music. And the jazz yeah. players do that really, really they well. Do. And a lot of Italian musicians uh, also have an affinity for Latin music, uh, Spanish mm -hmm. music, South American music, and so they bring that element heavily in, and they uh, have a closeness and uh, adaptability with the different kind of rhythmic things too, which I found make uh, Italian jazz pretty exciting. And uh, there's a lot of collaboration nature. I, I notice a lot of these Italian uh, jazz musicians get together and they don't even like make a, a name for the group or something. So they're kind of yeah. hard when you look through. It's just like, you know, it's an album title and who's the artist? It's like six different names and it's all like, you know, uh, all just a bunch of Italian names yeah. there but rather than uh you know creating a name for that unit or whatever it's just a you know a collaboration that happens so incidentally if anybody out there needs a name for their unit ensemble band we've got them just ask us yeah just ask us we <laughs> come up with them we've got a lot of them yeah of, yeah of all different natures um yeah so anyway we'll go a little bit uh, italian actually i've got enough for a couple of weeks of italian uh music but maybe we'll, well split it up let's split them up split a bit up. i got some spanish stuff to uh, get i want to get too. i want to get another french episode in there but i don't have enough yet i'm still uh, waiting for the french stuff to come get out. frenched again for the third time i got i got at least two more titles okay. <laughs> I've got uh, well, something to look forward to. Yeah, so we'll get some Italian uh, feasts in next week for episode 63. But this has been episode 62. Yeah, and uh, about that. if you're still listening at the end of this program, which is going on a little <laughs> bit long If you're still listening, tonight, we want you as a permanent listener. Yeah, you're, so you're... Uh, do like and subscribe on whatever platform uh, you're listening to us on. Check us out on uh, Facebook, too. Or on Deezer, you'll get the uh, list of music for next week uh, early. I'll get that out tomorrow. Uh, and any additional uh, videos or comments about uh, what we're going to talk about, uh, we'll put up with a little bit of humor. Uh, thanks again 
For our wonderful neon logo to Fast Signs of Staten Island always uh, stands out among the other podcasts, uh, being intriguing and seedy at the same time, uh, <laughs> hints at uh, lots of other things, and uh, yeah. we uh, appreciate that. Uh, yeah, we want that. We want that illicit kind of you know feel a little bit. That's right. Yeah. And uh, so until then, next week, uh, wish you a happy week of listening and we'll see you again next time.